two guys can't love each other. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, I could love someone even if I, you know, wasn't paid for it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Director's Club Podcast. I am Jim Laskowski. And I am Patrick Rapole. Wow. <laughs> Here we are again. I guess I'm in a giddy mood tonight, We haven't guys. been canceled yet. No. I'm glad. Yeah. Maybe I've had too much sugar. Who knows? But I'm really, really stoked for this episode. Got one of my favorite musicians and friends to on the show tonight. He's a hell of a guy, and uh, I've I've learned recently he's uh, quite the movie expert, and uh, I believe he's even majoring in film. Uh, welcome, Jordan Mason. Hey. hey, is that true? I be- you are majoring in film, correct? Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I've been writing a paper all day, actually, so if I get brain dead or get really academic suddenly, that's why. Oh, that's <laughs> an academic would fit perfectly for the director we're going to cover. Yes. Um, Gus Van Zandt, who's a very kind of a very intellectual. GSV, as <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what everybody likes to call him mm-hmm. nowadays. GSV. I saw him play with uh, GBV. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good, really good. Good band. Um, what, what were you writing your paper about? Todd Haynes, <gasps> nice. Oh yeah, that's a that's a that's, that's, a, that's a alum. That's who we 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 covered him with Russ. Yeah, yeah. I've listened to that episode. Good good times <laughs> for sure. More than once. Ooh, Whoa. nice. We got us on repeat. Yeah, we're, yeah. we're I, while you sleep. I, I, I'm not only on repeat. <laughs> I bet we're in his big bibliography. Wow. Yeah, that'd be an honor. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Jordan Mason, though, we should say, is a very talented musician. Absolutely. Um, Put out one of my favorite records. uh, It's it's definitely in my top 50, I think, ever. Yeah. It's probably the best uh, sort of lo-fi, independent folk folk. folk album that I've ever heard. Uh, Mm -hmm. Jordan, this one is with the Horse Museum, who is your band, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, it's Jordan Mason, the Horse Museum. Uh, Divorce lawyers, I shave my head. It's sort of a concept album. Uh, I, <laughs> I've been able to grasp bits and pieces. What, what's the basic concept of the album? Uh, basic concept is uh, my partner is in the other room, and he can hear this now, and he's laughing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the basic concept of the record is two people who fall in love uh, and get married. Um, but their relationship is sort of torn apart by the fact that they're a little bit gender confused and don't really know what's up. Hmm. Uh, yeah, that's a really lame description of it, but it's cool. It's a it's a great album. Though. There's yeah, a lot of call and response and very interesting song structures and stuff. And for sure, lots of layers. Good lyrics. You guys should check that album out. Yeah, fantastic instrumentation and lyrics. I, everything about it is great. It's it's floating out there in the internets mm-hmm. if you uh, care to look for it. But uh, I, I encourage you to check out the, the Bandcamp website or, 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 or go give it a you know listen over on the iTunes you know Spotify Spotify That's how you pronounce it, right? Yeah. Okay. That is it. I'm always confused. I don't know what Spotify is. Uh, yeah, it's kind of weird. 
it's mostly just like Netflix for music, really. I mean, you just listen to music at your leisure, bro. Oh, is it like Groove Shark? I guess. <laughs> These... <laughs> I, I, I never got into Spotify because it does, it does seem like there's been a thousand other websites that do the exact same thing. Like... Yeah, the whole streaming thing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can sort of sync it up to your iPhone or iPad. I I only, I pretty much can't listen. Like, I only I rarely listen to music when I'm on my computer. I can only really listen to it in the car, so it doesn't really. It's ne- it has no appeal to me. But you apparently, listen to it while you sleep too. Apparently, not even not even knowing what the website is, his music ended up on it. So I don't even know how my records wound up on. Like some of my old stuff that I didn't even know still existed out there is on there. Like automatic pilot old stuff before Deathless, mm-hmm. which I'm kind of embarrassed about, but that's okay. It's out there. Yeah, the you know. internet doesn't let you forget anything. No, definitely. That's what's happening not. now. You can't you can't forget about anything. Yeah. There are like weird little tour EPs that I recorded and made thirty copies of that are like online somewhere. Wow. I don't know. Why. <laughs> yeah, I think even if you deleted everything off of CLLCT or any hosting site in the past. It's still out there. People can just type it in and find a zip file or even on BMP3 one song or two. It's so weird to mm-hmm. me. I mean, we're not going to talk. This isn't, this isn't sound opinions. What the fuck? Yeah. We're here to talk movies, guys. Yes, but yes. I'm excited for that. Uh, but we did want to promote Jordan's music, obviously, because he's a hell of a musician. So, we think he'll enjoy it, is yes. basically. He's not, you know. He's not making money off it. We just genuinely think you and the audience will enjoy it. Mm-hmm. We'll probably put a link on the website. But, um... Yeah, I don't think there's a whole lot in terms of in-house stuff. I mean, we have a voicemail, but we're going to play it later when mm-hmm. we talk about uh, Gus Van Sant um, after we review our two main movies. We got some more stuff for the for the actual website in the works. Yes, we um, do. Hopefully we're going to make that... The, the goal is, to at least by the summer, to make that a destination... Yeah, for, I, I I would like definitely some supplemental writing on there. I mean, I'm kind of busy because of school, but we do have um, one of our friends and former guests. Is it Gabe? That's, Gabe. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's working on it right now. It's sure. not a sure thing yet, but okay. He might have something coming up. He might have reviews, other columns, stuff. So, but well, I mean, I guess we'll address that when it comes. To yeah, I'm pretty much just too lazy lately yeah. i've uh I'm, I'm resorting to movie and letterboxd to just do quick ratings and write like two sentence reviews and stuff so but anyway um yeah why don't we just get into what we watched this week guys this is what we watched this week jim patrick watch movies everybody's gotta watch something Are you prepared to just sort of bring up something that you've watched recently? Yeah, uh, I've watched a bunch of things. Awesome. What's one that has stood out for you? uh, Well, the best thing that I saw in the past week uh, is uh, I watched The Lovers on the Bridge. Hmm. Leos Carax film from 1991, I want to say. Is that Juliette Binoche? Is she in that? Yes, she is. Oh, I think I might have seen a long time ago. My memory's kind of fuzzy on it. Yeah, it's um, it's gorgeous. 
it's really, really great. Uh, the only thing that I think that's a little weird about it is that it's basically the most expensive French film ever made, and it's about homeless wow. people. Really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's great. So I don't really know what like that is all about, <laughs> uh, but it's gorgeous. Uh, it's got the best cinematography I've seen in a film in a long time. Is it? it so. Is it? Is it sort of an issue kind of? I mean, not that you know, not not that it's from Hollywood, but that how we sort of, I guess, understand it as is. Is it sort of trying to be about homelessness, or is it just like the main characters are homeless? Just the main characters are homeless. Okay. Yeah, cool. it's, it's really like it's basically like a surreal love story about two people who meet and live on a bridge uh, and in the middle of Paris and um, one of them is going blind and she's an artist and she wants to draw the other one. I can't remember their names now. Uh, I have the, she, I have the IMDb open. It's, it's Alex and Michelle. Alex and Michelle. Uh, that's what it looks like on the IMDb. Yeah. There you go. So Alex Michelle wants to draw Alex, but she's going blind and she's trying to like forget her old life. Like she's sort of purposefully being homeless, even though she doesn't have to be. Uh, Whereas Alex is like a weird street performer. And there are these really long, beautiful scenes of him, like breathing fire on the street. Um, Yeah. I don't know. It was weird, but really good. Wow. That sounds interesting to me. It says that yeah. uh, originally the director wanted to make a more simple film. Uh, yeah, and you know, like blew black up. and white. <laughs> yeah. No, that's that's great. Um, I'm a, I'm a, I'm quite the fan of uh, of a lot of French cinema, and a lot of that just happens. A lot of them happen to star Juliette Binoche. So. Um, yeah, she's around a lot in those films. Yeah, we we, although it's not a French film, we raved quite a bit about um, her most recent. Uh, movie that she was in, Certified Copy, and uh, yeah, yeah, I think you'd get a lot out of that. There's, there's so much, you know, like a lot of people were sort of initially just saying, oh, it's you know, like a before sunset kind of structure to the film, and that is there. But I think there's also um, lots of interplay with the narrative and how we perceive, you know, relationships both in movies and in real life, and sometimes how fluid that perception of identity can be so I, I, I really admire that love story for being something a little bit more something that gives you a lot of food for thought afterwards and while you're watching it too and of course Julia Binoche is just amazing in it I, well yeah she's, she's, she's always good I can't wait for us to at some point talk about Kislowski's Three Colors trilogy because mm-hmm. uh, she's in blue and I just I love all three of those movies so much yeah, no, we'll definitely check out Lovers on the Bridge sometime. It's really, I, I recommend it. Um, if this gives you any idea of like the way that it looks, uh, have either of you seen Gummo? I'm assuming you've seen Gummo. I, I have, yeah. I'm, he's, again, Harmony Corinne, somebody I want to tackle at some point in the future more. Yeah, um, he, the cinematographer for Gummo is the cinematographer for Lovers on the Bridge. Yeah. So it has that sort of same. Uh, I don't know, really sort of dreamy, beautiful, grainy film look. It's really nice. Apparently the director was in Harmony Corinne's Mr. Lonely. 
He was. Yeah. <laughs> I saw that one. Yeah, he I, plays... want, I wanted to tackle Harmony Corinne after that. I wasn't a big fan of it. No? No. Yeah, a lot of people are run hot and cold with him, I've noticed. Like, there are people out there who, you know, really respond to his work. And I'm, I am I was kind of indifferent to uh, to Gummo, but I want to rewatch it at some I point. I still haven't seen, yeah, I still haven't seen Gummo. I'm not, I was just not big on Mr. Lonely. Mm. Mr. Lonely is a little bit, uh, I like it, but it's tame for Harmony Crin. <laughs> yeah, I still haven't seen Trash Humpers. <laughs> Uh, you don't really need to. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, it's like his version of a found footage film, apparently. Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, it's If you like that kind of thing, then it's, I guess, worth watching. But, uh, <laughs> I, I kind of don't. <laughs> I think that uh, is the most phrase. base, <laughs> like, minimal compliment you could give any movie. <laughs> I mean, yeah. like I, I enjoyed scenes in it a lot, but I, it was you know, I just felt like it was kind of on, and I was just kind of watching it. Do you know what I mean? And now like, I found like a purpose. Yeah, like I felt really okay, like getting up to go to the bathroom and not pausing it and things, because <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? yeah. I didn't really feel like I was missing anything. Uh, and I don't normally do that, even with like a slow movie where nothing's happening. So I don't know. For what I watched recently i've got speaking of you know going to the bathroom and during the middle of the movie i kind of wanted to puke uh at some at very inst- at many instances during a movie that i was kind of interested in because it was available on demand and i have sporadically laughed at their show it's mostly at the guest appearances on the show um which i'm talking about tim and eric's Awesome show is that what it, is that the name of it? Super awesome or oh, awesome? did you see? Did you see the film? Tim and awesome, Tim and Eric's awesome show. Great job. Yeah, I saw Tim and Eric's billion dollar movie. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, not is a that? fan. Not a fan. Um, <laughs> a previous guest and friend of ours that we've also mentioned, Russ described like the Tim and Eric's approach to comedy as being in a room full of drunks that you can't stand to be around. And I kind of find that to be more than apt here with this movie. I, the first ten minutes kind of start off a little funny with, like, you know, Jeff Goldblum showing, showing up as Chef Goldblum, doing their little infomercial thing at the beginning of the movie I thought was kind of funny. Uh, and then there's, like, a really sort of clever opening credit sequence that is actually Tim and Eric's real film within the film. Um, and then it kind of goes downhill because like it, we cut to a theater where they're watching their movie and uh, Robert Loggia shows up and starts screaming about how they wasted a billion dollars on this piece of shit movie. And it becomes kind of like part meta and then part Wayne's world with a lot of dick jokes and fart jokes and vomit jokes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, a lot of surreal humor that did not work. And most of the time I like surreal absurdist humor. This felt completely forced and kind of abrasive in a way that's, I don't know. I I felt like I was watching nothing but trouble again or something, only much more in your face with how it's, you know, trying so hard to make you laugh and whether, you know, it's sort of like being subversive in the way that Freddie got fingered with subversive in that, you know, they want to play a joke on the audience. Uh, 
this time I wasn't laughing. I, I mean, I, with Freddy Got Fingered, I kind of laughed. I don't think it's a great movie. I don't think it's a hysterical movie, but there are things in that movie I kind of enjoyed. Um, but when you guys, when you have guys like Will Ferrell and John C. Riley and Will Forte, and they're not funny, then something's wrong. I don't know. I mean, I realize that you know some filmmakers just want to aggressively present their style in a way that's like screaming for attention. And that's something I don't respond to at all. That's like the opposite of what I want from a movie. Even if it, even if it is a comedy, um, I just found it to be really annoying. And, uh, I'm, I'm at this point, not at all interested in watching their show because of my insanely visceral response to the movie. I'm not, not a fan of what these guys do. I find it really unfunny. So I'm disappointed. I mean, I wasn't going into it thinking, you know, I'm a huge fan. I can't wait to see their movie. But I don't know. I, I was pretty indifferent. And it's not something like, well, you know, if other people find it funny, I, can, I, I can't argue that. So, But are, are, you're not a fan of the show, are you? Patrick? I think Wise is in it. What was that? Sorry, I'm just reading the IMDb. Ray Wise is in it? Yeah. I forget. Where does he show up at one point? I forgot about where he shows up. Oh man. Yeah. What? what what would he be doing in that movie? I don't understand. Okay. Cool. Anyway, sorry. I no, just noticed yeah, that. No, he I forgot I forgot what, what who, who, he shows up at one point, right. He might have been with the movie within the movie at the beginning. I can't remember. Hmm. Robert Loggia plays one of the studio execs and um Oh man, that guy! I can't remember. You know who plays the uh, reporter in in Die Hard and the uh, EPA guy from Ghostbusters? That the, guy. Yeah, you know who he is. Yeah, I just can't remember his name. Dickless. Yes, <laughs> it's true. This man has no dick. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, I just if if you if if you love if you like the show, maybe uh-huh. you'll find some of the of this movie funny. But I don't know. I wasn't too crazy about the Aqua Teen Hunger Force movie either, but I fucking hate Tim and Eric. Just for the record, I'm I've gotten to that point. Yeah, I've lost my patience. I just I like I feel like there's not a single thing on their show that took them more than three minutes to write, and that's I, what this movie feels. It's like. It's all just like super loud sound effects and strange editing, and then they have famous friends who are funny who are able to salvage some of their stuff. But like, yeah. Like it's one of the most underwritten shows, like comedy shows I've ever seen. I think like the lo-fi kind of, like the vi- you know edited on a video switcher thing, because like just because that's the kind of stuff I grew up with, just like the VHS lo-fi approach to a, you know a show is kind of clever, but also they need to do write good sketches on top of that style to make it worth watching. Yeah. And even in the movie, they have little... It's weird how conventional it is because it does turn into Wayne's World where they're like, oh, we got to make a billion dollars. So they wind up running a giant mall. And, of course, the mall is hideous and terrible. So they renovate it and it becomes a really straightforward comedy where, you know, some of the distorted, lo-fi, sound effecty kind of loud stuff is not even in there very much. Like some of the detours where, you know, they have like a, you know, an infomercial here or um, a presentation in the mall were kind of funny just because it is so weird. But um, there's a lot of, you know, 
there's you know giant dildos and all sorts of stuff that <laughs> I just I just kind of went okay they they obviously have all the freedom they want to you know fuck around and push the R rating but they certainly didn't do much with that comedically at all they just they're 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 like I don't know they're they're a void of comedy for me at this point I just don't find anything they do funny mm-hmm. so let's move on do you like them Jordan. Uh, I haven't really watched the show too much, to be honest. Okay. I only like I watched a couple episodes with a friend on tour once about four years ago, maybe, and I don't really remember it. And I've seen the Steve Brule stuff. That's online. funny, right? <clears throat> I find Steve Brule to be funny, and you have John C. Riley in here, and he plays Taquito in here, and he's not. Oh my god! Wow, it's it, that, that's when I felt like I was watching. Remember those giant fucking ugly man babies from Nothing But Trouble? Like that Dan Dan Aykroyd plays like a bald. Oh, he plays a naked baby. baby? Like I don't know what it was. It was just like some like a man. It was like some gross nuclear mutation guy or something. Yeah, that's like he had he had a he had a nose that was shaped like a dick. Right. Like he had a. But there was like these weird man baby creatures outside that i don't remember that part i tr- i blocked out pretty much all the non tupac digital Good. underground parts of nothing but trouble i feel like i have post traumatic stress from yeah. watching nothing but trouble <laughs> like it still shows up like i have flashbacks while i'm in the grocery store or something and i just start freaking out <laughs> thank you dan Aykroyd. thank you very much so what have you watched patrick um, how, how, uh, do you, I, I, I watched, uh, Dracula. Not the Dracula, Bell, dead and loving it. No, the Bela Lugosi Dracula Dracula. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, and, the yeah. yeah, yeah, because I like, okay. I mean, I do, I genuine, I generally like universal horror movies, uh, some more than others. I got to see, uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon in 3D. Nice. Um, uh, last year, and that was, that was a lot of fun. I think the, the 3D photography is like all the underwater photography in that movie is really beautiful and fun, um, and it's from the director of Freaks. Right? Todd, no, Todd yeah. Browning uh, did Dracula. Oh, he Creature from the Black Lagoon. I'm not. I don't know who directed it. Oh, okay. But no, Todd Browning did Dracula. But right. okay. this is not Freaks. I was so shocked. I really hate uh, Dracula. Interesting. It's really uncinematic. Um, like the first maybe like twenty minutes where I believe Renfield is first getting to the castle and doing all that stuff is it's I guess appropriately you know moody and spooky and has fog and stuff but as soon as they as soon as Dracula arrives in London it just becomes uh the stage play and it's just people talking in rooms and hmm. it's so I mean I I've never liked Bela Lugosi um you know my my <laughs> Yeah, I I have a ton of affection for Ed Wood, the you know the movie, and that and pretty much all affection I have for Bela Lugosi comes from Martin Lando's performance as him because I think just Bela Lugosi, just from all the movies I've seen, I've seen a lot of the sort of uh, like Z grade horror movies that he was in following Dracula, um, and, and he's always just overacting so much, and it never really does it for me. Like I'm I'm and I'm and He's I mean, good in Island of Lost Souls, wasn't he? he, he as, as like a, but he was like a werewolf creature. Like he was oh. in it for like there was like a close up of him for three seconds. He's not really a character in that one. But uh, no, I just Bela Lugosi just overacts so much 
and not in a way that I really consider that fun. Uh, I mean, it's not fair to compare him to Boris Karloff, but I love, but just I love oh, no. Boris, Boris Karloff. Karloff is great. Um, I the only time I've ever really liked Bela Lugosi is um, in the Raven, uh, yeah. not the uh, not the Roger Corman Raven, but the Raven he did with. Um, he was in a he was in a movie called The Raven with uh, Boris Karloff, and it was like a, uh, someone who's obsessed with Edgar Allan Poe. Right. Okay. I think I've seen that. And he's sort of and like there's the whole sort of point of his character is, I mean they couldn't say it obviously, but basically he just gets aroused by torture. He's sort of a Marquis de Sade kind of a <laughs> character in that, and so he's torturing people, and he mutates Karloff into some monster and. There's the pit and the pendulum. There's all the sorts of Poe references. Oh, yeah. And because Karloff underplays things and tends to be sort of under, you know, soft, softer spoken. It, what was the movie you lent me? That was, that was Isle of the Dead. Oh, okay. Isle yeah. of the Dead's great. He's That's probably my favorite. That. Yeah. But anyway, enough about Boris Karloff. Dracula is really uncinematic and – and I've, I mean this is actually the first – believe it or not, the first time I'd seen any Dracula movie – I'd seen vampire movies, but I'd never watched any Dracula movies before. You never saw Dracula 2000? Never saw <laughs> But he has the soundtrack. And I went and saw that in the theater. Yeah. Well, I mean, it had Wes Craven's name behind it, so how could it be bad? Um, no, I never but. saw Dracula 2000. I didn't see... I haven't seen the Hammer Dracula. I haven't... I, I haven't s- seen the MC Hammer Dracula. There's an MC Hammer Dracula? Yeah. You've never seen it? You can't bite this? Really? Yeah. That was your... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, you're, that's why you're the comedian and I'm not. That's why Holy I'm studying shit. brains in school. Oh, man. I'm so glad you took us down that road for the setup, Jim. Oh, <laughs> uh, no. I've never seen Can't Bite This. I, I did see the, the music video for the Adams Family song that MC oh, Hammer. I'm, yeah. sure there, I'm sure there was a Dracula hanging around somewhere there. Mm-hmm. Um, no, but it's, I, so I didn't like Bela Lugosi in it and... Like, there's literally rubber bats on strings. Like, <laughs> if you saw a high, like a like a really poor high school do a per, do a performance of Dracula, like that's the kind of effects that this feature film had, where like the rubber, like it'll show a rubber bat that's so clearly bouncing on a string, and then it will go off camera, and then Bela Lugosi will walk out. Mm-hmm. Like it's like the effects are really bad. Like not I really didn't like anything about it and I was surprised cuz I generally like universal horror. Well, movies. Ed Wood should sure put him on a pedestal. Yeah. from this performance too. No, I mean I there are people who like his performance. Yeah. But I I'm not one of them. Do you Now I was so I, but I did want to ask you what what are your guys' favorite universal horror movies? Hmm. Universal horror movies. Oh, I have to think. I'm going to look at what they've done. I don't even know. Uh, what have Bride I seen? Bride of Frankenstein? Bride of Frankenstein. <laughs> yeah, I That's... think so. That's definitely one of my favorites. That might sure. be mine too, honestly. Yeah. Uh, not crazy about The Mummy. What else What else would there be? Wolfman. Yeah. Invisible like Man. Wolfman. Creature yeah. of the Black Lagoon. Revenge of the Creature. Yeah, I think I've just seen, like, your Invisible Man and uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon, Bride of Frankenstein, and The Mummy. Like you saw the, Frankenstein too, right? Yeah, of course. Frankenstein's yeah. great. Oh yeah, no, definitely is. I, I think I liked Bride of Frankenstein a little even more. But uh, yeah, there's. I just seen like the basics, like the one you know the the classics. I had never really like got in depth to beyond your uh, the, the more popular titles. Well, my, my girlfriend is obsessed with Creature from the Black Lagoon. I know. 
So uh, she got the. I got her the sort of DVD set of all the creature movies. And so, there's some good ones. Well, there's Creature from the Black Lagoon. There's Revenge of the Creature, in which is the basic, which is where I'm guessing Jaws three got their basic plot because it's creature gets captured and gets put in like a Sea World thing, oh. and then he escapes and causes havoc. But for a while, like the, one of the most important scientific discoveries about evolution, about you know ev- everything is the the main thing the scientists decide to do is to put him in a tank and charge people <laughs> to look at him, uh, and then he of course he escapes. The third one apparently. Um, he gets badly hurt and is on the verge of dying and then surgeons rebuild him to have lungs and the third one is from the synopsis I've read about the creature trying to integrate into society so it's literally about like this mute this like sort of deformed uh, surgically operated on creature from the Black Lagoon who's just trying to like get a job yeah (laughs) wear wear a hat and go to work punch a clock just like anyone wow I really want to see that. I can't I wait to watch that. I think I'm with you on that one. It says that uh, there was supposed to be a remake of The Bride of Frankenstein, too, with, uh, oddly enough, the writers who wrote American Splendor. This was, like, uh, discussed in 2009. Really? Yeah. I did like the the uh, James Whale biopic, Gods and Monsters, with Ian McKellen. That was really cool. I really liked that movie. I thought it was uh, one, of, one of the more interesting biopics. Cause, uh, mostly because of the performances, but I, I remember liking uh, Ian McKellen quite Wait, a lot. Wait, who's that a biopic on? Uh, James Whale. Is it? Yeah. Gods and Monsters? Yeah. I'm pretty sure. I haven't seen it in a really long time. I don't remember it very well. Yeah. Why did I... Why did... to get Brendan Fraser in bed. <laughs> what, did I, what did I assume... Okay, I thought that was a Civil War movie. What's a Civil War movie that sounds... Gods and Generals? Generals, yeah. Okay. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. <laughs> it's easy to get that mixed up. Well, it's based on the book Father of Frankenstein. Yeah. So you should check that out. I'd be. I think you'd. I think you'd enjoy that movie. It's pretty good. No. Well, I mean, I just got. I got the Frankenstein sort of legacy, which has, you know, Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, Son of House mm. of, Ghost of Frankenstein. So wow. Yeah, there are a bunch. It's quite a legacy there. Uh, and I got the. I'm excited to watch the Spanish version of Dracula which is apparently much better than the English version mm. it, it, it was, which was shot at night on the same set so is this called Spacula? <laughs> it's called Spatula <laughs> I would hope so yeah it's, it's called Spatula Spatula City um nice. Jim you're funny um <laughs> <laughs> that was great thanks Jordan I, 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 I try I try I have my moments but my sense of humor is very um me, Bro, that's fine. Yeah, yes. Yeah, so I don't know. I, I, I would. I don't know if. Have you seen Dracula, Jim? Maybe when I was very young, and my memory of it is not all there. To be oh, honest, okay. I mean, it was playing at the music box, wasn't it? And I wanted to see it there, but you know. Yeah, it wasn't like much better than any of the sort of Z grade. You know, like when you get those big box sets, like fifty classic horror movies, and it's a lot yeah. of like sort of public domain stuff. It wasn't much better than a lot of those kinds Ouch. of movies that Bela Lugosi was in. It's disappointing to hear because I've always wanted to rewatch it at some point. I just, yeah, eh. oh well. Yeah, no, it's real bad. Oh, I did see the original Hunchback of Notre. I know it's not a, is that it's not a Hammer movie, but I'm just the Hunchback of Notre. With Lon Chaney. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's really good. Is that Universal? I'm pretty sure it is. Yeah, it is. Uh, what it's a silent era. I never know where. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, according to um, 
one of the commentaries, I guess, on the Dracula DVD, uh, the uh, one one of the film critics that was doing a commentary said that Todd Browning, he was more self assured as a silent film director, but never felt at ease with sound films. Apparently, I would disagree. Well, I mean, I, I, love I, I think Freaks is great. Yeah, I know. I think I don't think that's universal. Is that universal? I think I thought that was RKO. I think it's RKO. Yeah, but Freaks is great. Yeah. Anyway, so Dracula is really disappointing. Oh, Freaks is MGM. I didn't know that. Oh, is it? Yeah. All right. Okay. Cool. MGM, but MGM is one of the studios that bought. I'm sorry. What's that, Jordan? You know, MGM musicals, movies about freaks. <laughs> well, that was a musical. I mean, it wasn't a musical until the Ramones took that dinner scene and made it musical. But uh, musicals, gods, and monsters. Mm-hmm. MGM. Speaking of musicals, I'm missing. I'm missing Smash to to record this. What's so. Smash? Smash the new NBC show about the making of a Broadway show about Marilyn Monroe's life. It's really, su- it's super corny, but I like it a lot. Oh wow, I think I would totally like that. <laughs> I do, I do. I'm sorry, I Jordan. Just... I do. <laughs> no, I think that's awesome. <laughs> no, I was watching it sort of reluctantly, but uh, it's it's just it's like it's just cheesy enough while still being kind of just smart enough mm. um, to keep me watching at least. Just like the Gilmore Girls. Yeah, there you go. Perfect show. Perfect show for my sense of humor, my sensibilities. Ugh. I should go back and start rewatching old episodes of Gilmore Girls. Maybe you should just keep those memories. Maybe I should. Yeah. Maybe I'll watch Smash instead. Maybe. Yeah. You should. I did. I gave up on American Horror Story. I just did you. Yeah. I mean, oh. maybe maybe it gets better. Well, but, here's uh, the good news, Jim. Four episodes. Next season. In... Next season's completely different storyline. Oh, really? With new, all new characters. I like that. They're idea. doing a season. They're doing the the idea behind American Horror Story is apparently every season will be a. Di- it's like a anthology series, nice. but. Every season is a different story. Okay. Maybe I will just go with it again, especially if I know the story's wrapped up. Mm-hmm. But that's what they said about the killing. Like, oh, the story is going to be solved by the end of the season one, and they didn't even solve the murder, I guess, and everybody was pissed. But that was a show that also I gave up on after three or four episodes. I gave up uh, halfway through the first one. That was a bland show. Yeah, AMC, AMC does good work sometimes, but then they do Walking Dead and Hell on Wheels and, like, Mm. I haven't kept up with Walking Dead. I should. Mm. I've not watched any of these shows. <laughs> yeah, there's. it takes a lot for me to get into a brand new show. I mean, when it happens, I become borderline obsessive, but rarely... Have you watched Downton Abbey? No. You should watch that. That's what I've heard from everyone. Hmm. So I... An awesome old lady who's British and stuck up. It's awesome. Oh, is she? That's great. Yeah. That's so... I, I'm glad that they cast her against type. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Nice. All right. Because we're teaching new levels of acting. Okay. And, hmm. Yeah. No, I've heard nothing but great things about Downton Abbey. I've just never... I have just have not gotten around to it. The first... I believe the first season is on instant, so... Downtown it's Abbey? Downtown Abbey. It's dry, so. <laughs> D D O W N T O N. Oh. Downton. Downton. Yeah. Downton. Like wonton. Yeah. Oh, Look like not. wonton soup. That's just how I do. Okay. Got it. Downton. <laughs> that, let's, let's make the whole episode just me trying to pronounce the show uh-huh. for the rest of the episode. And then and then, then in the background, I'll do, I'll do lines from Lil B songs. Yeah. 
Downton. Very good. I okay. think we're ready to talk about Gus Van Sant. I, I sure hope so. Let's get to our director of the episode, Patrick. Mr. Gus, Gus Van, Van Sant. Gus Van Sant tells amazing stories about outsiders' brief quest for glory. Sometimes artsy, sometimes mainstream. <laughs> Gus Van Sant is the very best at filming the Pacific Northwest. Made three films that were about how death. FS, FSS. Elephant finding Forrester. Drugstore cowboy Jerry and to die for. Malanoche, my own private Idaho. Goodwill hunting. Sure, Van Zandt sometimes makes a stinker. Remade psycho, don't know what he did it for. But for the most part, they're always unique. He geek. Born in Louisville, Kentucky in 1952, Gus Van Zant was the son of a clothing manufacturer and traveling salesman. His father's job took him all across the country, from Kentucky to Connecticut, finally to Portland, Oregon. Growing up, he had an interest in Super 8 films and painting. He went to the Rhode Island School of Design alongside fellow students Dave, David Byrne and the Talking Heads. Oh, wow. But it wasn't until he saw the avant-garde films of Stan Brackage and Andy Warhol in college that he eventually changed his major from painting to cinema. His first feature film, Malanoche, came out in 1985, but it was 1989's Drugstore Cowboy that made him a name on the scene. My name is Bob, and this is a picture of me. It was 1971, and me and my friends had just got an apartment in Portland, Oregon. You alone? What'd you think? I brought my rat-faced granny along to hold my hand? That's Rick, my old partner. Every once in a while, we'd get restless. Hey! Hit the local points of interest. What are you guys been doing? Reading Mickey Spillane or something? You know, it just seems like the other day I was saying it looks like Bobby Hughes has finally slowed down a little bit, and then bang, you knock off another pharmacy. Now, Drugstore Cowboy is a sort of a realistic Western-inspired uh, story about about a thief and his sort of band of outlaws as they sort of roam from town to town and, and rob pharmacies, you know, for their fixes. Based on a book by, um, uh, I think, a true story, basically. It was uh, uh, maybe a memoir, because... Uh, the the guy who wrote the, the James Fogel yeah he um he was actually recently in the news for going back to his old ways because he he had gotten clean for a good long time and stopped robbing pharmacies and two years ago he was picked up once again and now he's serving fifteen years apparently yeah and and sad story and uh, it's it's a movie that's sort of anchored by Matt Dillon's performance. Um, yeah, I think I think of course there's still really good performances by James Legros and Kelly Lynch and Heather Graham. But yeah, very early appearance for, I mean, by Heather Graham. Yeah, the I think the real kind of star of the movie is definitely Gus Van Zandt. Even though it's sort of not the style that you know I first knew Gus Van Zandt sort of through Last Days and Jerry and and Elephant and stuff like that. The complete opposite of me, whereas I. Man, I was 12 years old when I saw my own private Idaho, and I didn't even understand it when I first saw it. Right. But uh, I remember renting it because I was a huge fan of River Phoenix, and 
I didn't know what I was in for. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, I I I thought it was one of the most original movies I'd ever seen. Oh no, it's a, it's a stunning movie, and I mean, it's the, both my, my own private Idaho and Drugstore Cowboy kind of proved that he's always had kind of an incredible eye. Yeah, and he's such an amazing visual stylist. Uh, even before he was sort of experimenting with long takes and sort of objective camera work. Uh, well, Jordan, what did you, what would you say um, in terms of your early ex- experience with Gus Van Sant? Like, just kind of like an overview of like when you first saw one of his films and what you felt at the time. Uh, the first Gus Van Sant film that I saw was Google Hunting. I oh, think. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, when it came out. Uh, so I think I was 11. Wow. And, uh, I don't know, my brother really liked it, and so he made the family watch it. We used to, you know, like, watch movies together as a family. Uh, and I remember liking it, but, I mean, it's funny to look back on now, because it doesn't feel like a Gus Van Zandt movie that much to me, in many ways. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Uh, but... Then I saw my own private Idaho as well. Yeah, and it's it's interesting when you go back to those first two films. Well, no, the first three films. I mean, it's uh, you know, Malanoche was like you know, completely uh, you know, sort of an experimental first film. What's that? Malanoche actually, I feel, is almost kind of de- defined by its very fast editing style. Yeah. You know, sort of frantic cutting. You know. Oh, definitely. And uh, you know he's he, he's he's definitely you know a great much like um, a couple of recent filmmakers like Kelly Reichardt they 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 managed to capture that Portland Oregon you know uh, landscape just the that environment that that these characters live in and it, it sort of he sort of creates his own world especially in something like my own private Idaho which although goes in many different you know places in terms of location um i I think drugstore cowboy it's it's a really great portrayal of uh drug addiction but you know throwing in some you know throwing in william burroughs towards the end of this movie uh i think says kind of volumes about about the story and how (laughs) you, you see what kind of a person you can become when you know you're enslaved by 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 drugs and also you know kind of the appeal of the lifestyle not necessarily you know glamorizing but at the same time sort of having that rebellious outlaw right nature to I, that's what one he's of the doing things i really appreciate about a drugstore cowboy is the drug abuse is uh, you know it's the drug use i should say is not sort of it, it isn't like set as tragic the first time Matt Dillon shoots up it's very natural it's not like there's big close-ups on uh, on the syringe or anything where you know shoots up in the backseat after their first score it's not like Requiem for a Dream no though Requiem for a Dream definitely stole the uh, the sort of obsession with sort of close-ups and texture the um, yeah when they first get home after that after that uh sort of theft there's a lot of close-ups of needles and spoons and the cotton and everything and those kind of and and even after afterwards throughout there's a lot of hyper focusing on mm-hmm. you know even Matt Dillon's character later on tries to go clean and 
when he's in his meetings, there's, you know, extreme close-ups of ashtrays and stuff like that. I really respond, you know, just even personally as someone who tends to hyper-focus on things. Um, like, I love that sort of choice he made. And uh, there's there's the great scene when Matt Dillon comes home towards the end and the screen is completely dark. And then you hear a light switch and then you realize that you've been looking at a light bulb because the entire screen yeah. goes from sort of black to white with just the you can barely read the the writing the like the 60 watt sort of printing on the light bulb uh i love those kinds of inserts um yeah he's really good at capturing the sad desperation of these characters and how you know they're the, you know they they're basically and you know there's the element of the uh um i forgot who plays the police uh detective or the it's the it's the uh it's yeah. the it's the rapist from warrior he's from the warriors and he tries yeah, to rape right. the, the female cop who gets on i think the... it's james remar right oh is that his name yeah, yeah 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 he was in 48 hours in the warriors and aliens oh yeah he was in aliens that's right i should i should know who that guy is but anyway no i mean like just sort of the um how they they basically have no home and they're sort of forced to be on the run and you know it's it, it obviously is not going to end well per se but i also thought that just the approach of him going you know into some sort of rehabilitation wasn't you know candy coated either and i kind of was like you know it's it's something like train spotting when i first saw it i i, I didn't necessarily feel like it was romanticizing you know being a drug addict i just there was a lot of energy to it, and that's something I think Gus well, Van Sant had a, a, an influence. Obviously. What I appreciate is its matter of factness. It trusts the audience enough to yeah. not have to tell us how to feel about these characters. It, right. it that trusts that the audience will understand the sort of complex emotions uh, behind the choices these characters make and the states they're in. And these, um, so I, I appreciate that it that it's very matter of fact when the guy. You know, when they first get home, and the guy across the street is trying to sell them crystal meth, and mm-hmm. they're not, and they're not breaking down sort of what what the blue chemical. Sorry, my phone is ringing. Um, they're not breaking down sort of what the blue chemical they talk about is, or mm-hmm. the they're not defining all of the drugs, and they're not. There's not a voice like the voiceover is used as flavor. Um, I'd say very similar to sort of the way Goodfellas voiceover is used. Where it gives exposition, but it doesn't feel like it's holding the audience's hand. It's yeah, yeah. That's that's it's the good kind of voiceover where you're you're learning more about the characters, uh, and you're well, I should say character since Matt Dillon's the only one who has a voiceover than uh, the way and how they feel about things rather than, than yeah just plain exposition. And I like the choices the that he chooses. Whoa, that was a weird way to say that. <laughs> I like. Gus Van Sant's choices in many instances, and not in just this film, but all, most of his films, where he like focuses on one detail or one character flaw or quality that you know ma- later turns out to be a big deal. For this, it's Matt Dillon's superstitions that he has, and how that becomes a much bigger. De- like you first, it's just kind of like a side note where he's telling a story involving a, a pet dog that he had. <laughs> Which turns out to be really funny. Um, one of the f- flashback moments is, uh, you know, f- learning about the story of, of the dog. But I just the ran hat away on the and bed. They couldn't find it. Yeah, <laughs> that's kind of a cute 
cute. Like you, you're yeah. picturing some <laughs> horrifying story of them getting of them getting high and fucking the killing dog. it or something. Yeah. But no, the, the end result is well, we couldn't we couldn't look for it because of our lifestyle, and that was sad. <laughs> but no, I love I love one of the attention things was, to detail is really. You good. See, this was the first time I had seen Drugstore Cowboy, and I was and it was one of those moments that you get sometimes when you're watching older movies where you suddenly see the uh, where everyone else stole from. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like when I was talking about, like when I first saw Twitch of the Death Nerve, and I saw where and like oh, all the shots that yeah. slasher movies stole from Twitch of the Death Nerve, like the uh, sort of hyper focus, like I said, the hyper focusing on things and the drug use is all requiem for a dream, and the the sort of um, oh, what was I going to? Well, say? you mentioned Goodfellas too. Oh, oh, well, yeah, no, no, there was a uh, well, no, I'll get to that, but. The uh, the my fa- my very favorite scene in A Scanner Darkly is the scene where um, they're fixing Ro- the bicycle. Robert, yeah, Robert Downey Jr. comes home with the bike, and they're talking right. about like gears, and then suddenly they realize one is missing or something. Like, yeah, and but the way they talk about it is so matter of fact that no one stops to go, "Oh, this is a fucking crazy conversation that we're having." <laughs> yeah, and that's the exact way that the uh, conversation like that. That scene in particular feels like a bunch of scenes in Drugstore Cowboy, um, and especially yeah, the sort together. of when he's talking about their superstitions, and it's like, no hats on the bed. If I see a hat on the bed, I'm just fucking leaving. Yeah. And it's like, and, and like no one stops to go, wait, that's the silliest thing I've ever heard, because it's just, they're all on the same wavelength, and they've all, they're all sort of building this accepted reality for themselves. It's like the characters have this obsessive nature about them, but he, but Gus Van Sant portrays it in a very matter-of-fact way. No, I, yeah, it's not... He doesn't have to stop and point out that it's... That's what I mean, it's, and I like that, you know, that's the kind of films I respond to is when the filmmaker just doesn't force you to feel something, and you're allowed to just immerse yourself in it, and you don't have to, you know, have a score raised. I mean, this does have a very good score, and a lot of it is pretty minimal. I mean, I was noticing, especially since I listened to this on headphones that there's a lot of stuff going on in the background too. And he's really good at sound design, which is something I never really realized with him before. I mean, I'd seen stuff like, you know, Jerry and the other films, but man, he's really good with almost every aspect, including what goes on in the background of, of his movies. The score, again, you're talking about bits and pieces stolen from a, you know, naked lunch. Mm-hmm. Is that has the very very similar score? Yeah. Uh, again, it's about sort of people who are addicted to narcotics. Um, Jordan, what are, what are your feelings on the film? I feel like we've. Uh, I I haven't seen Drugstore Cowboy since I was seventeen, maybe. Okay. Uh, and I watched it on VHS the last time I watched it, and it was in full frame. Ouch. And. You know, none of the stuff that you want. Uh, I remember really liking it, but I honestly don't really remember it well enough to say much about it. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah I wish problem. I could have watched it, but I had a paper to write. No, that's fair. Um, no, it's so... <laughs> but uh, I do mean, though, he does have... Uh, I mean, I can think of many instances in my own private Idaho, which I think visually is very similar. Yes, and and I think thematically as well. Yeah, where you know, there's there's like I just remember shots of you know things like River Phoenix's hair standing up, you know, when he's falling asleep, and it's and the camera just pans up and it just stays on River Phoenix's hair standing up for 
a minute, you know, <laughs> those kinds of details that the, uh, the movie allows, you know, his films just sort of allow those pacing things, you know, where you're allowed to stop and look at those things for a minute. Absolutely. Yeah. I like that about, uh, you know, any kind of filmmaker that decides to let his movie breathe a bit, you know, I mean, it has a great pace. I mean, it, it, it doesn't feel rushed and it doesn't feel it, slow. It basically feels exactly how I wish Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas yes. felt. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, again, there there is subtlety as well. And that's kind of, you know, something I guess, you know, Matt Dillon has always been kind of a showy actor. He he wears his acting tricks on his sleeve a lot in, in some of his films. I mean, I, I th- I've always kind of liked him, but not, you know, I, I'm, I've never been like a huge fan. You know, I've, I think that in, this is probably one of his best performances because it's very, um, you know, he's playing a character that is very flawed. I think the other movie that he would, did really well in was playing a very similar character. He played essentially Charles Bukowski in, uh, in Factotum. That's right. I, I think he's pretty good at just playing these low-key kind well, of I think, stoner I think, characters. I think he's a great in the first part of the movie when he's sort of leading the group because mm-hmm. he's very charismatic and you can see why. He's the leader. He, yeah, and, you know, but it, it doesn't play it as overly smart or, you know, it's, you know, it shows his flaws. Uh, what did you make of him never wanting to have sex with his wife? Because... Well, well, I guess he was just too drugged up most of the time. I mean, he, he made drugs a priority over sex. Yeah. You know, in most cases. And I think after he got clean, he wanted to have sex with her when she returned. That's right. Okay. So, you know, it's it's unfortunate. That's what happens. You know, your 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 tension goes, you know, into other areas. I didn't know, I didn't know if, maybe, if maybe that was sort of hints that his character was closeted in some way, but I didn't see anything else I don't think so. that's related to it, so I didn't, I didn't, I didn't think so, but it was just, it was my first thought when I'm watching the movie. Mm-hmm. But, um... Yeah, and James LaGrosse is in this, and he's... He's a, so good. <laughs> yeah. I like James LaGrosse. James LaGrosse does not act enough, I don't feel. He's so good in, uh, he, he almost plays kind of a similar burnout character in, um, uh, Scotland, PA. I think I've seen is that's the retelling uh, of Macbeth as the creation of fast food. That's another the one I should watch. I, I remember Christopher Walken yeah. as the detective, and like Andy Dick and two other like two pe- other people play right. the witches. Maura Tierney was in that too. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah I, she's I, Lady yeah. Macbeth. Okay, yeah, I vaguely remember that. I, I like him in Living in Oblivion as playing essentially Brad Pitt. Yeah, no, he's amazing in Living in Oblivion. I yeah. really like James LaGrosse in movie. Yeah. Um, and it was it's always interesting to go back and, you know, not that I've ever thought Heather Graham was a great actress or anything, but when you see her in some of the earlier roles like this, and a movie that came out, I think, the year after, around the same time, the, uh, the adaptation of the play Six Degrees of Separation. She's really good in that. Yeah. And... Uh, I, that's that's a movie I think a lot of people should check out because it's one of Will Smith's best performances too. Well, no, I, I Heather, I was sort of realizing because I watched uh, King of Marvin Gardens. Uh, oh, I recently. need to see that. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll lend you that uh, that BBS uh, Criterion set. It's really mm-hmm. good. But um, something I was really realizing about Ellen Burstyn is that mm. she looks at any moment like she could either laugh or cry, and sometimes do them both at the same time. And Heather Graham, I don't think is as good as Ellen Burson, but she has that same sort of thing where her eyes get wide and you're not sure if she's about to yeah. laugh or she's about to start just break down crying. And, 
She, yeah, especially in, here and in Boogie Nights. Yeah, in Boogie Nights and in here. I mean, especially here, just the way that character is. It's a per, she's kind of a perfect actress because she's both pretty. She, I mean, she of course, she's of course she's a very attractive lady, but she's also fragile. Yeah, she also seems very fragile and very unpredictable. Yeah, and you know, given sort of where her character goes, purposely feeling like feeling left out because. She wasn't, I guess, part of the original crew. She got picked up by James LaGrosse. She was a counter girl, and like mm-hmm. they sort of treat her as a second class citizen, and then they, <laughs> and then they don't, they don't treat. And so she sort of begins to resent them for that. Like it's a really, really just, I guess, well cast. Yeah, definitely. It's weird as I was watching this because I also recently watched rewatched Vacancy. I'm kind of freaked out by movies that take that have these really like tense sequences in seedy motels like oh, yeah. on the side of the road like yeah i mean there's obviously everyone remembers you know a famous one like no country for old men or something but yeah just uh, that that's the sequence in this still worked for me where all the sheriffs show up well, it, for I that think, convention and right, what i like what i like about that escape <laughs> That fucking that is one of those things that is so unbelievable that it has to be true. Mm-hmm. Like the fucking sheriff's convention shows up right when their friend dies and they yeah. don't know how to get her out. That's great, and I like the way that uh, Gus Van Zant makes the frame so claustrophobic. Like, yeah. really makes I them felt trapped it. within that CD Hope motel room. You know, right? Um, I love, and I, I I do want to talk about William S. Burroughs in this movie. Oh, yeah. um, now, Gus Van Zant. I believe he actually recorded an album with William S. Burroughs. He, hmm. he, uh, he, he directed a music video. I don't know if William S. Burroughs, I know William S. Burroughs did a lot of sort of, you know, experimental, you know, sound montage and stuff like that. I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, he did one with Kurt Cobain. Right. I'm not sure how much he, I'm, I'm, I, I'm not so up on his career into the 80s and 90s, but, um, like, William S. Burroughs. Number one, you can tell he's fucking William S. Burroughs because he just delights in phrases. He's like, the systematic demonification of <laughs> the drug. Like, it, like it, you, it's a person who fucking loves words and loves chewing over words yeah. and phrases. And, you know, as, as someone who has, you know, read Naked Lunch a lot, it's, I really appreciate finally seeing him. And it's, he's so well cast. Oh, I completely agree. I think that's one thing we need to bring up about Gus Van Sant. He is so open to collaborating with his actors. Like, yeah. More than a lot of filmmakers, he's very open to, hey, you want to re- rewrite the scene to a couple of Yeah, Gus Van Zandt, Gus Van Zandt, uh, not, I'm sorry, uh, William S. Burroughs did some, re- did, I believe, wrote most of his own scenes. Sure. And that's something that I really admire, you know, Gus Van Sant giving that kind of freedom to his actors and just letting them make the, the you know the scene their own. Well, here's here's what sort of separates Gus Van Sant so many directors is he's really interested in experiments. Yeah, and he really want, likes to take chances, but he has a vision at the same time, mm-hmm. and that to me those two things are almost contradictory. It's so like it's hard to be open to experimentation and also have a clear vision of what you want to do, um, and maybe it's just the fact that. Well, maybe while he's filming that. Yeah, know, maybe it's just in post he ha- he's able – he's better than mo- – because, I mean, there are people like John Cameron Mitchell, you know, who – you know, he, in Short Bus, he was experimenting and he was trying something new and he was collaborating with his actors. And that movie, you know, turned out very strange and flawed and, you know, it just – and lopsided and – like, I don't – I'm not – I mean, I, have you seen Short Bus, Jordan? 
Uh, Short Breast is one of my favorite films. Okay. <laughs> well, there are a lot of people who'd feel that way, for sure. I saw it five times in the theater. Nice. No, yeah. I, I, I mean... I, I know guess... what you mean. It's not... It's, it's a little uneven. Um, and I, But I, I, I'm always more for, you know... Uh, like I, I give him enough credit for what he's trying to do, you know, yeah. and I'm more interested in what he's trying to do than how it turns out, you know? I see, yeah. Uh, a lot of my favorite films are pretty flawed, I'd say. Agreed. I, I, I'm totally with you there. I think even, like, you know, people, there are people out there who considered something like My Own Private Idaho as like a failed... Very flawed. <laughs> yeah, very flawed, kind of like a failed ex- ex- attempt at, you know, adapting Shakespeare. You know, I listened to another podcast that... Nobody like there was like a panel of four people who none of them liked my own private Idaho, and uh, I was kind of taken aback because I, I find so much to appreciate it. Because for me, you know, I don't consider it to be a failure, but people, but even a failed experiment is far more interesting than you know just a mediocre audience pleaser. You know, and and it's shocking to think of Gus Van Sant's career. Maybe at one point he kind of thought you know what, what's wrong with making a mediocre audience pleaser? I'm going to try that, you know, because I've done so many other, you know, weird out there experimental things. Maybe I should just see what happens when I try either a biopic or something like Finding Forrester. Finding Forrester. Yeah. Um, from what, I mean, I've, I've only read a couple of interviews where he briefly references sort of uh, Goodwill Hunting and Finding Forrester, but... Like to him, those were even those were exercises in can I completely subvert at like my artistic vision? <laughs> like, can I can I subdue it and make something that is that shows no trace of me? Can I be an invisible director as opposed to one huh. who has a very idiosyncratic vision? And in that way, it's very successful. I think pretty much the only parts of Goodwill Hunting that really feel like Gus Van Zant are the ones where. Just all the guys are, you know, driving Hanging around out. and yeah, that's my favorite. And, and, Those are my favorite. Well, scenes. Right, I, I wish the movie was about Casey Affleck. I and fucking the, love. <laughs> and the first. Why don't you date? give me a fucking sandwich to be a prick? I told you, to, like. Oh man, I just found out something hilarious. What? How did I not know this? The dude who did the cinematography for Goodwill Hunting did the cinematography for Gummo and Lovers on the Bridge. Whoa! Oh, there you go. Whoa! Yeah, that's crazy. Just all connected somehow. Yep. Hmm. Um. No. No. Okay. I, but I. I, I do. Yeah. I like the cinematography, and then I looked it up, and I was like, "Oh, I there did you like go. the cinematography in Goodwill Hunting." Yeah. I mean, it's I, the, the script is not the best, and I will say that the the therapy portrayed is not very realistic. Uh-huh. <laughs> um. But there are certainly. <laughs> I don't know. I maybe it's because it has its heart in the right place. Sometimes, like. You know, maybe it manipulates me to a fault. I don't know. I feel maybe it's because I just think Matt Damon is a charismatic guy and I like him and pretty much everything. And I like the scenes between him and Minnie Driver so much. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I I don't hate it. I think it's a OK film. I was but. rethinking this. I was saying, I mean, I was I don't know if I mentioned this when we talked about our top movies of last year. But I mean, one of the sort of things I was marveling about when I watched Goodwill Hunting and again I caught a ju- part of Adjustment Bureau on HBO the other night is like Matt Damon has instant sort of chemistry with all of his other actresses mm-hmm. like like even you, you think remember the first date scene in Departed like yeah. he's so and like when he meets he just sees Vera Faminga for yeah. on the elevator and he just like 
is super charming and they have instant chemistry. Like that was almost a flaw of the departed was that you didn't really see the disconnect in their relationship <laughs> because he was, cause he had so much more chemistry with her than uh, Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. But, um, no, no one, but- one other thing I want to talk about drugstore cowboy is it did this. I'm not saying Martin Scorsese was rip, ripped off or, you know, I'm, I, I would be skeptical to say you mean that he ripped off this. I'm not saying Martin Scorsese ripped off drugstore cowboy. I'm not even saying he was inspired by drugstore cowboy because, the time in between their release dates was less than a year. Yeah, less than zero. Yeah, no, just kidding. no. It was less than a, it was less than a year. Yeah, it was less than this year, Jim. Right. Um, okay. No, no. It was less than a year, so I don't think there was really an opportunity for Martin Scorsese to uh, watch Drugstore Cowboy and then film because Drugstore Cowboy came out in October and then uh, Goodfellas filmed the previous summer. Anyway, what I'm trying to say is Drugstore Cowboy does the thing before Goodfellas, which is sort of what made Goodfellas so famous and what Goodfellas so endlessly imitated of just that sort of montage. Specifically, I'm talking about when Matt Dillon is explaining the the hole in the floor of their car. Uh. That is exactly – you go back and watch that. It's exactly shot, written, edited, and performed – and directed as if it was from Goodfellas. Like, if it was Ray Liotta, like, that whole sequence of, yeah. you know, we traveled the stash. We couldn't keep it too right, long, so uh, we had the hole to, on the floor. We get pulled over. they the cops. Yeah, right. and, then, and then, of course, it ends with that great shot of the, the window rolling down, and Matt Dillon goes, can I help you, officer? And then immediately cuts to the next thing. Like, that is, if, if, in, if instead of Matt Dillon, it was Ray Liotta going, can I help, you know, can I help you, officer? You would think it was a deleted scene from Goodfellas. Hmm. And I think that's interesting that, you know, Gus Van Zant is so, you know, he's so innovative and he's so, he has, he tries out so many different things. I don't think, I think, I think pr- my pr- own private Idaho looks like Drugstore Cowboy, but I don't think Malinoche looks like right. Drugstore Cowboy. No, and I don't not. think Jerry looks like either. And I don't think Goodwill Hunting looks like either. Um, like he, he, I, he's, he is uh, just so, such a interesting master director. And I think all the things that, you know, Martin Scorsese got so much credit for from Goodfellas. It's interesting that he did it first in yeah. that scene and a couple other scenes, the way the voiceover works. Maybe it's just because they're both from true stories. Uh, I just from the way the voiceover sounds, um, especially early on uh, in the film, when Matt Dillon first gets high and looks out the window, and there's like those great sort of diversions where there's just objects flying through the air. Yeah. I like while that the, stuff. While the crazy jazz music plays mm-hmm. like that. It feels like it was taken from the book, from a book, those those speeches, and the same way that there are certain parts of Goodfellas that seem like they're taken directly from a book as opposed to from a screenwriter. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I, so, I, think I mean, there's, there's that similarity, but I, I do think I do. That's one of my favorite sequences in the film just because it's so fucking. And I mean, there's a I think it feels effortless. Yeah. In the and way it's put together. The whole film, it feels yeah. that way. My only sort of criticism of Drugstore Cowboy, I'd say, is that, you know, maybe predictably this there is no way of avoiding this, but the movie's not nearly as interesting once he gets goes to rehab. Yeah. I mean, I think it does a pretty good job showing the str- showing his struggle in a non... But then William Burroughs shows up. And- no, I mean, William Burroughs is great, and I think it does a good job showing his struggle, 
being not that he's withdrawing from drugs, but he's withdrawing from the lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Like instead of focusing on him being sick in the middle of the night or whatever, right. or, or whatever, you know, when you go through it withdrawal, focuses on junk, him being practical and pragmatic. It focuses on him being bored at work. Well, yeah, that's what I mean. <laughs> Which is that's kind of a really uh, interesting approach. Where I mean, uh, you know, that that's the kind of approach that um, Jeff Nichols took with Take Shelter. Oh yeah, just sort of having that, you know. Exploring the mundane versus, you know, and how much that can be in conflict with the insane, or I guess, you know, just like that sort of sharp contrast between, you know, what a character can go through in such a short span of time. And I think, I think, you know, underplaying that is, is appropriate. No, I'm not, I, I like that part of the movie, but it, it just, it cannot compare to the first no. sort of two thirds of the And the film. ending is kind of, uh, you know, and anticlimactic, I guess. I mean, it's, where are you going to go with it? I mean, obviously there's going to be some sort of confrontation, but maybe it's just like that. The character that causes the confrontation is uh, kind of annoying, <laughs> but you know, I'm not sure if it could have ended any other way. And I, I, but I liked, you know, him rolling off and absolutely. The no, I, I love uh, drugstore cowboy a lot. Yeah, me too. It's, it's right up there with one of um, probably his best film. Maybe, uh, maybe, maybe we're going to get into something else. Uh, you know, that we're both, I think all three of us are quite fond of. Yeah. I hate you. <laughs> Not really, Not really. It's just really hot on my front and really cold on my back. <laughs> but it kind of bent a little. It wasn't it might really be to the right. It was to the right, and then it was kind of down a little bit, and then it was kind of back up, so maybe it was to the right. So call it north-northwest. So you go to the next one, I'll go to the next one. If you don't find anything, we meet back right there. Jerry, which he uh, put out way later in his career, a few years after the critical and box office success of Goodwill Hunting and the infamous and rather catastrophic shot for shot of uh, remake of Psycho, as well as uh, Finding Forrester, he sort of felt a need, I think, to get back in touch with his maverick, you know, cinematic indie roots. And this uh, Jerry was the first of his you know, self-described death trilogy. And it stars uh, Matt Damon and Casey Affleck as two friends who embark on an outdoor adventure in the open wilderness only to get lost. And I'm kind of glad that, you know, I mean, like, this is a very easy plot <laughs> to uh, yeah. sum up because that's all that really uh, happens. Um, but, you know, some people might... might go ahead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just said, but is it, Jim? Maybe. We're going to find out. <laughs> um, but, like, I know a lot of pe- some people found it, this movie to be a chore. It's long takes, the lack of, uh, you know, plot, I guess, to be a little too minimal and uneventful. Um, like, this is kind of like the antithesis of something like 127 Hours, which... You know, he didn't necessarily get lost. He got trapped. But, man, that camera work is so busy and frantic in that movie. And in here, it's this is a beautifully meditative and graceful experience. Kind of just how there isn't very much dialogue. And watching these two characters get lost and, you know, hopefully trying to find their way back. But, you know, losing themselves in the process. I think something like the single-shot intricacy but it's also downplayed and very simple. Something like the dirt mattress sequence, 
I, I just can't get over how brilliant that is constructed in, in a very simple one-shot manner. I just, I don't know. I, there's definitely a lot underneath the surface here that I'm sure we can sort of delve into together. But I, I, upon a second rewatch here with this one, um, it's it's grown into definitely one of the upper tier uh, of Gus Van Sant's work for me, for sure. I want to. I want to hear what Jordan has to say. Absolutely, since he was very quiet during the last. Yeah, um, go for it, man. I think Jerry is my favorite Gus Van Sant film. Great. It's maybe tied with My Own Private Idaho, mm-hmm. but My Own Private Idaho has sort of weird personal stuff attached to it, so it's hard to say. Um, I've seen it a lot of times, uh, Jerry. Um, my favorite scene is the scene right after they argue. There's a, a long take where they walk next to one another oh, and God. all you can oh. is the crunching of their footsteps. Yes. Uh, it's, just, it's, a, it's a perfect metaphor the way their footsteps are perfectly in sync and yeah. then slowly get out of sync. And because the because the fra- their position in the frame doesn't change and because you know the composition doesn't change, all you have to do is listen to their feet and it forces you to listen to the fucking footsteps and getting more and more out of sync, and which is, of course, a just a perfect metaphor for where they are at that point yeah that's that's like the moment when i was watching it the first time i remember that was when i was like this movie is awesome (laughs) yeah i would say before that though i mean my personal favorite scene is definitely the uh what does he call it the lookout spot the rock oh rock marooned Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, once once they create the dirt mattress, right? Is that... <laughs> I, I like things... the use of like their the, their inventive terminology. Oh my god! Okay, I want to I want to talk about because I I I'm I hate nature. I should say this. I fucking I, <laughs> I do. I'm I apologize. I don't. I'm not anti environmentalist. I'm not or anything like that. But I can't take you out for a hike. No, I, at, at best, nature bores me, and at mm-hmm. worst, it makes me very uncomfortable and uneasy, and I just it, it just freaks me out. So this is the you perfect... saw the Blair Witch Project at a young age. I yeah, think. I saw I saw the Blair Witch Project at a young age, and then I also uh, oh I saw Evil Dead, and then had trees uh, that you know that raped. So yeah, you but... don't want to get raped by trees. <laughs> no, no, but I don't like nature. So and I like sort of the way that the Jerry's as as I, I guess they're named are um are completely at odds like like they look as out of place doing this hike as like a as just like someone in full scuba gear would look out of place like playing tennis like it's just like nothing to me says more about uh where we are with sort of technology and how removed we've become from nature and how there's this sort of assumption we have that there are safety guards all around and there are rails and there are you know, it doesn't matter where we go. There's always something that will lead us back. You know that we have GPSs and we have you know. There's Why always didn't they someone, have their iPhone? Yeah, there's always someone we can call. You know, and mm-hmm. like nothing. We nothing take makes it for that, granted. Yeah, nothing makes that point more than a movie that has none of that at all. Yeah, nothing. So you know, forget Social Network or any other movie about social media or anything like this. This is sort of about where we are as a species, to me. Um, but anyway, no. So I do hate nature, and I appreciate the way that. While Gus Van Zandt, you know, he obviously uses the the wide variety of nature to sort of create these beautiful tableaus. It's not in a Terrence Mallet kind of isn't this amazing Glamorous, and beautiful. Yeah, it's it's beautiful. it's all about creating this sort of oppressive atmosphere. 
Yeah, the movie feels oppressive. And yeah, it's it's it's, it's something like you know anxiety inducing, even when they're you know just you know what you know they're lost obviously. Yeah, and, and and it's and for every moment in which I'm like, oh man, I like it gets to a point almost where I'm like, they're so dumb. But, and then I think about it and I'm like, no, I'm, I'd be the exact same way. I would, if I was in that point where I was literally so lost that I had no clue where to even begin, I'm sure I'd be coming up with bullshit theories about mating grounds. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the greatest thing ever. Yeah. I like the, how they so invent that the stuff. video game that they're talking about. Oh no, that, well that's, yeah, he's talking about, ironically the i actually happen to know the video game he's talking about is civilization Hmm. which of course is ironic but um because i i mean i own that video game i actually knew what he was talking about but uh no but like just when they're when they're like talking about following animal tracks and they have that long conversation about well the mating grounds will be near water because because they mate and then they'll be thirsty like (laughs) which is this bizarre fucking twisted logic but at the same time it is the kind of logic that a desperate person who has no actual knowledge would to back back up would come up with right just out of a will to survive i have to come up with some rationale or else i'm just gonna have to lie here in the middle of a desert and die and then it has that amazing fucking cut like one of the most Mm. brutal cuts ever where it cuts from that long conversation they have about mating grounds and about watering holes and stuff. And then it cuts to a long shot of them in a desert, like like a total desert where they're just tiny specks and they're completely dwarfed by the, by the winds and sands and stuff. Yeah. The, just watching the organic process of them getting lost unfold is really like, it's terrifying. (laughs) And I, I mean, to me, this is this is tapping into a fear I think anybody would have if they got lost. And uh, and I actually do have a fear. That is actually like one of my um I have there have been moments like I have cuz I have no sense of direction. So there have been moments when I've I've like driven to Chicago and then when I'm on the way like when I'm trying to get back home my GPS runs out of batteries and it stops charging like and I'm literally lost and I I will just start screaming like I can't like I, I have actually that is an intense fear, which is another reason I fucking love this movie so much because mm. it speaks to me. But no, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh no, it's it's I I, I think that uh, you know a, a moment where they they're trying so hard to reconnect. I love the moment where like one of them's on top of you know one area and like hey I was supposed to meet you back at the other place and they're sort of just going back and forth in these exchanges where they're just going in circles through conversation where they're not really getting anywhere and they're just thinking well. Why didn't why didn't you go over there and why didn't you meet me over here and like the lack of you know the sort of miscommunication I think this film taps into as well which is okay here's here's they can't even communicate together my favorite <laughs> thing about this movie is how you know this is a movie that's almost notorious for being brutally like you look at the Rotten Tomatoes reviews, all the bad reviews are like, "Oh, it's arty! It's the most arty film of all art house films yeah. of all art times." Like people are just like, "Oh, it, it's so," but it is super. Like I mean, it does it in an unconventional way, and the story itself is very simple. But like, there are very clear arcs and very clear scenes and very clear character arcs and relationships and plots and structure. Like, yeah, and even the a, hallucinatory it's, it's, experience like one of the most surprising is normal. Thing, to yeah, have. one of the most surprising things about this movie was how 
was, you know, even compared to some other movie like Elephant or Last Days, like, this movie is very conventional almost. Yeah. Um, and and the way he's able to... But I mean, Conventional story with unconventional way to tell it, I think. Well, I, 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 I mean, just Just yeah, in yeah. terms of being how... I don't even want to use the word forcefully minimal, but just... Um, no, it is. It's absolutely... I mean, yeah. it is a hundred minutes long and there are a hundred shots. Like, right, right, right. This is, you know, this is Gus Van Zandt. Ex- this is sort of him going full-blown experimental mm-hmm. where he goes, you and, you know, Matt, you and Casey can write the dialogue and you and... <laughs> yeah, and I don't know. I think after watching all three of the Death Trilogy, the one thing I kind of picked up on i think he's playing with that sort of audience expectation of like a desire to find meaning behind death like we want to know why why would this happen why yeah. would these, why would these characters get lost why would these characters do you know shoot up a school shoot up a school and why would this character kill himself you know and we don't really know and that's really we're not meant that's, we're not meant to know i don't think you know, sometimes death just happens as haphazardly or organically as living life in a way. And I think his approach to it, especially in Jerry, I, I think Jerry's the most successful, accessible of the, of the three of them, even with just having, you know, big names like Casey Affleck and uh, and uh, Matt Damon, that choice to maybe all the, you know, Matt Damon fans will come check this out. But um, especially if you if you look at the, the DVD cover, it looks like. It looks like it's sort of a heartwarming I, story. I don't know if I'd seen it. You have no. Been. I have. I, oh, yeah. I don't Let's go on a vacation. Yeah, <laughs> and it's and it shows that like them against a sunset running. Like yeah, let's go on an adventure. Like come on, will hunting. Let's go. Um, You're sick of your math problems and stuff. Let's go on a trip. I like, and it does. Uh, I'm you know good on Gus Van Zant for getting this fucking released. <laughs> you know, because <laughs> this is the this is the kind of movie that. That people love, but is would be uh, like if I was a film distributor, I would have no way how to put this in theaters and how to advertise mm-hmm. it. Um, it didn't make a lot of money. No, I no. mean it definitely didn't. And <laughs> people walked out when I saw it in Chicago. Oh, really? Yeah, they lost patience with it, much like they did with Somewhere. Yeah, I mean Callback. the difference is Somewhere. I mean it has no meaning and it's, it's horrible, but. Uh. <laughs> the only death trilogy film that I saw in the theater was Last Days, and I don't think anyone walked out of that. Mm. Yeah, that's that was the that was the first of the, of the when I first saw Last Days. I think I walked in with a lot of preconceived notions and maybe even some baggage because I'd grown up in the uh, Kurt Cobain, you know, rom- romanticism of the grunge era, and I have a lot of personal. I don't really love Nirvana as much as I did when I was a teenager, <laughs> but just because I have a lot of in, a lot of investment in that time period in my life and how, you know, hearing Kurt Cobain was one of the reasons why I picked up a guitar or whatever. I, I last days played with my expectations in a way I didn't find uh, very engaging or interesting the first time I saw it. Now I have the complete opposite reaction to that. I think Last Days is almost every bit as good as Jerry. Almost. Not quite. I, th- I think I like Jerry a little bit more, but I don't know. I, after seeing Last Days a second time as well, I've, I've completely come around on my response to that. Um, I think because, maybe it's because seeing it in context with the other films, I sort of, okay, I think I finally get what he's going for here. 
And I, I, I respond to that because, as I mentioned with Paris, Texas, you know, on the movie club, I'm a total fan of this style of oh, I guess we could have mentioned that up top of the show. We, oh, yeah. We recently recorded a podcast <laughs> with the movie that. club. Don't. Anyway, we'll, we'll talk about that. Yeah. Um, I do want to talk about one, one last thing about Jerry. Sort of the sole things that keep me from not, not loving it. I do love it. But sort of that keep me from calling it an undisputed un, you know, masterpiece is I think the ending is just a little pat and ironic. Like the I'm, fact that he gets away, that, or that he strangles his friend and then seconds later is rescued. Like, can I tell you something? Yeah, please do. The first time that I saw Jerry, the the moment where they're where he kills him at the end, uh, I thought that they were going to kiss. Honestly, that's yeah. what I thought was going to happen. And then that's not what happened. Well, I well the, what what I think I think that says a lot about I, I mean I think that says a lot about that scene is because I do think it's I don't think it's I, I, actually I do think it's a little bit inspired by just anger mm-hmm. because it is Casey Affleck's character's idea to go out, but I think it's also mercy. I think it, yeah, like it I feels like feeling. an act of mercy, an act of love that he kills Casey Affleck. So the fact that you know I I I mean I actually I had I've had it spoiled for me. Um. So I knew th- how the movie ended, but like, that's what happened in real life because this is sort of loosely based on the real life event of David Coughlin. Yeah, yeah. But we, it was. I don't know, maybe it's just the way it's portrayed. Where it's, he was even put on trial, I guess, or something. Yeah, he was in. Uh, he was in jail for a while. Hmm. I think he's out now. No, but I. I just. I feel like maybe it's just the way it's shot in which they show up like immediately after like, I feel like in something like uh, the, the mist, like that kind of works just because that's the kind of movie it is. But I feel yeah. like in a movie like this, that is kind of deeper and more subtle. That's kind of a, I, I don't want to say cheap, but it does feel a little cheap just the way. Maybe it should have had him walking alone for a while. And then, well, you know, I mean, like there are, at that point later. they're already sprawled out on the sand. There's not, yeah. there's not much more walking that can be done. True. And I, and it's not like, oh, the movie would have been improved if there was two minutes of Matt Damon on lying on the sand unconscious before the people show up. Like, so I mean, I, I don't, I don't really have suggestions about how to better end it. But. I think they should have just played Alanis Morissette's ironic at the end. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been really appropriate. I yes. li- I like the twinkly piano at the very beginning quite a bit. I think I've grown more and more a fan of that um, minimal piano approach to uh, a, a score composition, and maybe that's because I'm a big fan of Dustin O'Halloran, who um, Who's he, that? he's a lot of his stuff was featured in like Marie Antoinette. That was the first time I heard his uh, sort of all he really does is like neoclassical piano music kind of like the rage that was that was actually the other thing by the by the point where it's like very clear that they're that they're not going to get out of it mm-hmm. there's a part where the plinking piano music starts playing and the camera starts circling around casey affleck sitting there and matt damon sitting there and they're both super sad like i hated that moment i mean it was it's a small moment in the movie sure but i hated that and i think i have a visceral reaction because i think all fucking oscar movies and indie movies that are trying to be oscar movies uh, all Clint Eastwood movies, they all have fucking plinking piano scores. And I have this sort of this sort of Pavlovian response whenever I just hear like, bling, 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 bling. Like just whenever I hear that sort of sad plinking piano, I just think, okay, this is fucking bullshit. I don't care anymore. <laughs> like, 
You listen to the Brian Eno piece that does that, though. What Brian Eno piece? You know, the, the, the Brian Eno um, ambient uh, piano piece. That that's you number one. That's number one. That's 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 something I put on to go to sleep. I find it relaxing. And yeah, comforting. but I don't think that I think that it has it been has used in so many. It is it is the all star of indie movies. Mm-hmm. You might as well put Smash Mouth's All Star over the end credits. Fuck if you're you. Put plinking <laughs> piano music over the. I just fucking hate every time plinking piano starts happening. I say that means that you didn't know what to do. God, I can't wait to own a real piano. Yeah. Ugh. Well, every time you That's... come over, I'm just going to play that the moment you walk in. <laughs> no, I just hate it. I just hate it so much. But uh, it loves you. The, the scene with the piano? Well, there it were it's sort of the camera circles around them as they're sitting I and they're s- sad. Yeah, I hate that because it's just like I know that it's I, that doesn't add anything to the movie for me. And again, it's a small part. I love this movie. You feel like the piano is trying to dictate an emotion to you? Absolutely. Yeah. Which is well, the score. The score wasn't composed for the film. It's uh, it's Arvo Parrot pieces from 1976 and, and 1978. Hmm. And those are and those and what happened is those were in Jerry, and then they and then they were used in a ton of other movies. Well, yeah, because the um, the recording of them that's in Jerry was done in 1999, like just a few years before Jerry was made. So it started to get used a lot after, like, that recording came out, because before that, there was no real definitive recording of either of those pieces. Right. So, I mean, uh, I want to yeah, so it's not fair, because it wasn't cliche when Jerry did it. I just, I just have, this is just sort of my Pavlovian response to hearing plinking pianos, and I just, I don't like those kinds of, I don't like that music, I don't like, I, I, the less score, the better. I don't like score trying to tell me how to feel. Uh, I just think it's pretty. Yeah, but that's not a pretty moment. <laughs> I just think it's pretty. Yeah. It is. <laughs> no, it's not a pretty moment. It's I a know. sad moment. And it's just like, they're sad. Like, you might as well just have a narrator on saying they're sad. Like, everything about that movie is sort of challenging conventions okay. and is is interesting and subtle and allows you to come to your own conclusions and to the point where people who... Right. Are unable to think during movies. No, I'm not walk normally, out during it. I'm but not that normally moment pro is just, score. Uh, if it's, I think like the sort of grandiose score. I, I think that's more apparent in a lot of films. You but know, I that, think the grandiose John Williams score. I think the plinking piano and sort of ambient music is just as cliche. Maybe it's cliche. I, mean, I find it pleasant. I mean, I really love the music that plays when they're on the salt flats. That long yeah. when. That long shot where they're just wandering the salt flats and it feels like the fucking moon because mm-hmm. of that like weird electronic seventies almost kind of music playing. Right. I love that because again, that portrays something other than telling me how to feel. It portrays how they're feeling. You know, like mm-hmm. it portrays, it creates, it alters how you view the landscape. Like that's, that's I like attention to sound design more than no, score. He's he's an amazing sound designer. I think maybe this would be a good time to talk about some of his other movies. Yeah, I want to talk about my own private Idaho, especially because of I don't know, that was my first experience with Gus Van Sant. I mean, I I had seen it at a very young age when I didn't understand, you know, film the way I do now and rewatching it like 20 years later. I I mean, I have only seen this movie maybe 3 times. I but I'm I'm pretty convinced I've like I've only seen it twice, I think, but I, I, uh, my, f- my, my only memory, um, of it was literally like the first, 
10 minutes and kind of thinking of how awesome a metaphor for an orgasm, a house just collapsing in the, in, in the middle of the road. I just found that to be fucking awesome. And even when I was young, I was like, that's just a cool image. But, but you know, and I, at the time I was like, oh my God, what River Phoenix is a, a fucking a fantastic actor. And even watching this, you know, now in retrospect, knowing that, you know, he's he's not here anymore, it's it brings a whole other sort of melancholy tone for me watching it. Um, seeing, you know, especially the campfire scene, which for me is one of the most memorable and moving moments in any Gus Van Sant movie. I had such a, uh, an emotional response to seeing that again. But, you know, I've, other than the, the obvious, you know, feeling I have watching it years later... It's a really audacious approach to adapting Shakespeare. Uh, I think it's Henry the Fourth, Part One. I don't know if it was. Is it Part One, Part Two? I think it's like a an amalgam of three different Shakespeare plays, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, but Jordan, what do you? What? How do you feel about um, my own private Idaho? Oh, it's so good. Um, I. I mean, like I. I would say that the only parts of it that I think are a little bit problematic are are the Bob stuff, the the sort of Oliver Twist mixed with <laughs> Shakespeare stuff that doesn't always totally work. Um, I at least always find it entertaining to watch, but I don't really know that it like feels like a different movie. Yeah, yeah, it feels like another movie going on within the movie, which is not a bad thing, but it's, I, I you know, it it definitely like stands out awkwardly. There are some scenes where I'm like, I don't really know what's going on, um, but you know, there's also moments. The whole movie really is kind of just like a, um, just a really great assemblance of scenes. I don't really feel like it has one narrative you know i mean it sort of does but i don't really think that that's the point it certainly manages (laughs) to make you uh i I don't know maybe it's because the the lead character suffers from narcolepsy you know watching it you know you wake up in strange places you're not even sure why he's there and you know you're pretty much inside the mind of this lead character and sort of the weird worlds he encounters it has it has some lynchian qualities to it i mean some sort of like highly stylized sort of unexpected things that I can't believe I didn't recall from seeing it when I was really young. Like, like the like the magazines. Singing. <laughs> well yeah, you Udo Kier's amazing musical number singing into the lamp or whatever. And oh yeah, well, that's very that's very Lynch that's that's a yeah. Lynch reference. Yeah. Um the thing I other than the campfire scene, I loved the choice of the still shots for the love scenes. I thought that was really... Oh, that's such a good thing. I love that. Yeah. I I don't know. I Because I don't think I'd, I've seen that in anything else. So, I mean, I think this is an incredibly original movie that, again, it is. it does feel like a mashup, like when we talked about Southland. It feels like a lot of different choices and styles sort of crammed together. Um, the emotional payoff really isn't there. I don't... Like, I really wanted it to just be a sort of a streamlined narrative where it is about River Phoenix trying to find his mother and that sense of home that he can't seem to, 
you know, find anywhere, even though he meets all these people and he's trying to have all these uh, connections, including with Keanu Reeves, who I think is very good in this movie, I think- except when he has to, like, um, almost under-emote once he becomes, you know, Mr. Corporate Guy. I think I think Keanu Reeves is a force that can be used for good. <laughs> Uh, I talked about. I think <laughs> sure. I, t- I talked about not being super into his performance when we talked about the Wachowski brothers in the Matrix. But uh, I think, like, as an object of desire, he's great because he's a very beautiful person who seems vaguely like positive and friendly. But at the same <laughs> time, you kind of hate him. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, he's also empty. <laughs> yeah, he does seem empty to me. Yeah, you see. Yeah, so it's sort of something like you. And that says so much about the sort of relationship. If, if let me put it this way: if 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 uh, River Phoenix and uh, Keanu Reeves had too much chemistry, then it would make you view their relationship differently, as opposed to being one sided. Whereas, mm-hmm. because Keanu Reeves is so empty, and because you don't see what River Phoenix sees, instead you are seeing River Phoenix desire Keanu Reeves. You know yeah. what I mean? Oh yeah, no, that totally makes sense. Like so, I I think he's. I think he's well utilized there. Um, I and you're, you know, just because of who he is, you know that there's not sort of. And I'm not saying because oh he's a movie star because I don't think he was a movie star at this point. Um, Bill and Ted. Yeah, well, <laughs> point Break I, was the same year. You just you yeah. just really can't see him falling back in love with River. Uh, River's character. I keep, right. sorry, I don't remember the character. I names. find it strange that once they go back into the restaurant, uh, when Bob sees Keanu Reeves wearing a suit and follows him into that fancy restaurant, because he says, "Mike, come with me," and you don't see River Phoenix walk in with him at all in the background. He's not there. He doesn't see Keanu Reeves in the restaurant at all. He doesn't even bother to show up in that scene, which I thought was weird, because the way Bob says it, he's like, come on, come with me. We're going to go see Keanu Reeves. And River Phoenix isn't even in the scene at all. It's just Bob. So that was weird. I just noticed that rewatching it, that it was, I wonder what kind of a choice that was. But again, it's, I like the, I mean, it's been overdone in a lot of movies, but I kind of like the use of the time-lapse photography in here. I mean, it's more to sort of portray like when he's having a, Anxiety of fit and has a narcoleptic. Right, fit. I think it's a stylistic choice that works. Yeah, definitely. It's I think not, I think most of this MC. movie works. I think but. it works, and also I don't think it was as overused when the film was made. Right, right. That's the other thing you got to keep remembering because yeah. Gus Van Sant is so. I mean, I hope that he is not just remembered for Goodwill Hunting. Oh God! Like I, he is so influential and so such an amazing sort of filmmaker. Uh, now, Last Days was probably the first movie I saw by him. Mm-hmm. I love Last Days because I didn't, for the same reasons that you had problems with it, Jim. I have no, I had no real connections to. I grew up without cable, right. so I never had MTV. And in Texas, the radio did not play a lot of modern rock. So even though I was born in 1987, I didn't know who Nirvana was until I was until about like 1999. Like so, I was, and you didn't know who River Phoenix was too. Back no, then. that's true. I I didn't know who River Phoenix was until way way later. Um, but um, but so so to me, Last Days is kind of perfect because it's because uh, it, it's because it, again, I was able to just sort of view it as 
and you when it's almost an experiment because the same way that sort of elephant is and even jerry because jerry just sort of know that things aren't going to go well there's no there's not really yeah. any point in them like after the first 20 minutes there's no point in jerry where you think they're going to be rescued i just wonder if with last days an elephant because they draw from real publicized incidents in our american culture it's it's harder to separate that in some way whereas like with jerry i i didn't know this was a true story the first time i saw it you know, I didn't know this was, you know, it was based on a real incident or anything. Um, and well, he- actually, mm-hmm. I do have something interesting to say about Elephant, briefly. Oh, yeah, definitely. Which, we can just sort of talk about I, Last Days and Elephant uh, together. When I saw Elephant for the first time, I didn't know what it was about at all. Like, I didn't read the back of the DVD case or anything. I didn't know anything about it. So when I watched it, I didn't know that it was going to turn into what it did. Like, I didn't know oh, that wow. they were going to shoot up the school. Um, which I think gave me a very different viewing experience of it than most people, because everyone else seems to have known that that's what it was about when they went to go see it. Whereas, like, you know, when you go to see the Kurt Cobain film, quote-unquote, you know how it's going to end. Right. And I guess I kind of wanted more... I'm not even saying... I'm not context, or even, like I mentioned, that he's sort of playing against the expectation of you know, we want uh, a reason or a meaning behind death, and sometimes there isn't. Um, I just thought that even the long takes, like when he's just sitting in the room and that Boys to Men song is playing in its entirety, I thought it was borderline self-indulgent when I first saw it, where I was, maybe I was impatient with the movie on some level. And you have to have patience with all three of the, the death trilogy. I mean, it takes his time. But I think for a reason and very effectively. I I, I love the way the um, the Kurt sort of character Blake, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the way the I believe the first time I saw Last Days, I didn't even like really realize he was shooting up heroin. Like I don't think there's actually a scene of him injecting himself. Like, but it's but like it's pretty clear that he's that that he just is high on like that's what he dug up in the backyard i mean mm-hmm. which is again uh that might be a reference to drugstore cowboy how they hide their drugs in the ground they dig a hole and right but uh he you know that's what he digs up and then he shoots up and then so then the 30 minutes after that or he's just staring at the boys to men video it's like it's not just him being sad or whatever it's um a couple other things about last days i mean there are other personal reasons i'm really really in love with this movie that I you know don't care to go into, but basically I, I do appreciate that Gus Van Zandt realizes that like the choice to end one's life does not come the moment before you end your life. Like, mm-hmm. uh, like he has pretty much made up his mind that he's going to die before the movie starts. I feel, yeah, and that's you know, yeah. and I appreciate that you know that. He does, you know, through elliptical editing, it it cuts between him sort of in the dark. Uh, I believe he takes off his glasses, and it's one of the first times you really see it, his face clearly. And then the next time you see him, he is lying dead in the in the greenhouse. Right. Um, like, there's no need for a dramatic scene where he's holding the gun to his head, you know. Uh, and I think that's because, like, you picture that in your mind, or at least I. I mean, it's not something I want to picture, but I guess. Because you romanticize 
somebody, you know, culturally significant in your mind, that's kind of what you expect. Right. And the fact that I think the first time I saw it, I was like, well, that wasn't cool. <laughs> I don't know. Or, well, I mean, not necessarily cool. That's not the right word. But it was more of just um, un... Not not as uh, emotionally resonant or dramatic as I was expecting because maybe you know I hadn't considered the fact that this is actually the best approach to this this kind of story and you know having a long drawn out sequence where he's just writing a song you know is not self indulgent. That that first song that he performs is hands down easily my favorite part of the movie mm-hmm. and I think it's a fucking brilliant it's all one take where uh, you're f- we're looking through a window at him recording different tracks of the yeah. drums and the guitars and different vocal tracks and it starts off very simple and it's just building an energy and it's building an angst and you feel and it's just the music sort of speaks for everything inco- incomprehensible but here's the thing and here's what is brilliant about that the it, it it tackles sort of the uh, paradox of the fact that he the only way he could get these kinds of emotions out of his chest was to make music, but making music was what caused those emotions. Oh, and so nice. and so the way the camera pulls back, the closer he is to being released uh, to releasing this anger and to this tension and this pain he feels, the farther away we get from it because mm. now it's a product like. So, like, that whole shot read. perfectly encaptures why, like, everything you need to know about why didn't he go get help? Why isn't he just talking to someone about it? Like, he doesn't know how to express himself through words. There's, he barely strings together three words throughout the entire movie. Yeah. You know, he only knows, you know, like, this is how he expresses himself. And, it's, and because it's the only moment in the movie where he is emotive at all, it stands mm-hmm. out so much. And it's, I mean, I believe it's like right dead center in the middle of the movie. Yeah. So you understand, oh, this is how he's getting it out. But at the same time, the camera's pulling back where you just see this house and he's being trapped in the, the sort of the window panes and the, you know, right. being framed by it. And, oh, my God. No, like now that, I think that's a, a brilliant sequence. Which, and the only thing that pisses me off, sorry, again, my phone is ringing. Um, it's Kurt Cobain. Yeah, it's Kurt Cobain. He says that I got it all wrong. <laughs> um, the only thing that pisses me off is there's another there's another number in it where he's performing on the acoustic guitar, uh-huh. and I that doesn't really add anything to me. Mm-hmm. So that, you don't like that song? I, no, it's a fine song. I mean, but I, it just... I think, again, Michael, doesn't Pitt, Michael much, Pitt himself wrote that song. Yeah, I have nothing against or for the song. It's just that I, I don't think it adds anything to the movie. I think... I think that one moment where he is re- where he releases all that and that one great shot, I think that's all you needed. Yeah. It says volumes. I mean, it's very I know what you mean, but I I think the reason that I like the other song being there is the just the shot of him ripping the the string off the guitar. Like he's just like I'm I'm done. <laughs> I don't know. That that moment really sticks out to me. Yeah. Uh, and the moment where he goes to the club. Oh yeah, god, that that's person really is painful. like, look, I don't want to bother. Like, that's really painful. Yeah, there's no. It's amazing how Gus Van Zandt is able by not setting up any context to this to Blake, quote unquote Blake's uh, s- sort of pains or his life or his struggles or what he's doing. I mean, if you listen carefully or if you have like subtitles on, you can sort of understand what the promoters are 
when are talk telling him on that one phone call when he's, yeah. he's too high on heroin to even respond like um like but you still understand perfectly in that scene in the club like oh this is no he can't see anything there and all of those friends around his house they he is too famous and too 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 rich and too popular to be able to completely trust any of them there's they're like they're the friends you see them debating whether or not to say anything and because they're afraid that they're more you know they're afraid they don't know how bad it is and they don't and they don't want to ruin their career or ruin you know like they don't want to get kicked out of the band or kicked out of the posse or whatever it's unclear who plays what role right you know yeah. and other musicians who aren't who don't have an investment in him they still want something out of him they still want him to listen yeah. to the song and give him advice like you see you're you're constantly paraded you know all of these people who are in his life it's not him alone it's not just him you know he is surrounded by people throughout this movie and none of them like none of them can make any kind of connection to him at all and that's and it's just the way that Gus Van Zandt is able to make suicide feel like makes you not necessarily glad he commits suicide. It's not a happy ending by any stretch of the imagination, but it makes you understand it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and it, it puts it in a whole different context that I hadn't considered before, and I I commend him now more than question it because had, I wouldn't I wouldn't say I hated Last Days. I just questioned the intent at the first time I saw it, and maybe it was just because I had preconceived expectations for it and you know that that can happen you know i can't i'm, I'm not i can't walk into every single film with a hundred percent open mind uh but if there's one there's definitely one reason why i'm glad we did gus van sant it's so i could revisit this and have a completely different reaction to it for the better and i hate oh, to get just rewatch it for the podcast oh yeah yeah i i've been meaning to rewatch it for a while but i'm I'm glad that I decided because this wasn't one of our one of our two films, but I try my best to watch a lot of the more significant of the filmmakers' work, and this one sort of eluded me. Whereas I I, I did love uh, Jerry, and I was okay. I was kind of lukewarm, but I still really liked Elephant a lot. But this was one that I kind of didn't qu- quite grasp until either I had some time to sit with it. And revisit it at a time where I could process it. And I like, not to get too music geeky, but um, I like that the character of uh, Scott listens to Venus and Furs by uh, The Velvet Underground. I I particularly like that. And just to play out the whole song, hey, why not? No no complaints. No complaints there. It's interesting how Venus and Furs has the uh, lyric, On Bended Knee, in it. And the boys to men song that plays uh-huh. on the television is called "On Bended Knee." Oh, really? Yes. Didn't make that connection. All the parallels are there. Um, let's get to a voicemail. Oh, real I also quick. I also want to say I'm, oh, oh, I'm yeah, glad that Last Days is not allegorical because uh-huh. a rock star about to die wandering through a mansion where people in his life are could have turned in this big oh it's an allegory where every room represents his life yeah. or something. It's very much against that kind of sort of metaphorical reading like i think i think all the pieces are there that it's very literal you know and i sure. i appreciated that right 
I'm glad. Cor- I'm glad I, Courtney Love didn't interfere with. <laughs> right. Well, no, no. What I like about it is that Gus Van Zant has genuine affection for outsiders and for you know people on the outskirts of society and the ones who feel alienated. Yeah, yeah. and uh, I mean, of course, that's a running theme is sort of that alienation. But like, I don't. I can't imagine anyone else feeling that kind of compassion for a Kurt Co- making a movie about Kurt Cobain and feeling that kind of compassion without yeah. Kurt like. I'm dreading like a traditional Gus biopic. Van Zant does not tell you the story of what Kurt Cobain's death meant to him. You know what I mean? Yeah. Gus Van Zant does not tell you the story of what Nirvana meant to him or anything like that. It tells you the story of a man who is broken and has no way of getting out and that's like that that kind of compassion especially from someone as intellectual like most intellectual filmmakers they tend to lack humanity. Mm-hmm. I I feel like it almost is a dichotomy where what you know, filmmakers like David Fincher or Christopher Nolan or Stanley Kubrick, when they they're very intellectual, but they tend to not, you know, they're not really hum- they they're not so much interested in human aspects, and they're not so. Yeah, I think it's Gus Van Sant does show compassion and empathy in a way that because I think it it is kind of a disservice if he decide to idealize the legacy, you know, or you know, kind of harp on Kurt Cobain as this cultural icon and glamorize that. Absolutely. And I think that I, like, why didn't Gus Van Sant do the Johnny Cash (laughs) biopic? You know, I mean, like, it would have been that, because the one thing I read when I read the Johnny Cash autobiography, there's a whole chapter dedicated to how he went into a cave with the intention of dying, you know, after being strung out on pills. Can you imagine Gus, it would have been Gus Van Sant's version of that would just be the cave. And Johnny Cash in the cave, you know, having these moments of realization. Whereas, I don't know, that that kind of pissed me off after re- – because I, I gave Walk the Line kind of a pass. I didn't love it, but I I admired it. I thought it was okay. But then I read the autobiography. I'm like, holy shit, they missed out big time on a very important life, in my opinion. So, and you know, with all that said, I think Last Days is a masterpiece now. And I'm glad that I've – had that uh, turnaround with this one. Hey, let's listen to a voicemail because uh, before we wrap things up, let's quickly talk about um, one of Gus Van Sant's more interesting films <laughs> that uh, a lot of people talked about. Hello, Jim and Patrick. This is Robert Reinecke from com. I have a question for you regarding Gus Van Sant. I know you'll be covering a lot of topics regarding him. There's no shortage of... Uh, to cover, but I have a specific question. Do you consider Gus Van Sant's shot-for-shot remake of Cycle a legitimate experiment or a giant middle finger to the studio? I wait to hear your response. Have a good day. Uh, look forward to hearing your show. Thanks so much for the voicemail, Robert. Really appreciate the Did you question. Were you able to hear that? Uh, were, you, were you able to hear that, Jordan? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, because we've had guests before who weren't able to hear the sounds that you were. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, so I, I just want to make sure you heard that. <laughs> I think it's both. Yeah, um, I completely agree. I mean, this isn't something that he fell into. This is something that, I mean, this is an idea that he had mm-hmm. to remake Psycho. He wanted to do. Yeah, and I think he had interest, but I... I think he maybe had a couple ideas, and and I think they're conflicting. 
Um, for sure. I I think the idea of a shot for shot remake of Psycho, and because he had, he has sort of spoken about how you know filmmaking and photography. There's no way to disappear. Like you, whoever takes the picture is, you know, it, you're going to see who made it. And there's no way that he can do what Hitchcock did, even if he frames every shot like Hitchcock and has the same, you know, ha- has the same script as Hitchcock and all that. Like, so it was sort of an experiment about how the inevitable differences that would be made and sort of. And there could have been an interesting movie made from this because I think I think I think the idea of seeing a movie like Psycho, yeah, complete, classic, that's remade. completely the exact same but in color mm-hmm. and with different actors, that almost feels like a nightmare. Like the same way that you remember things, but it wasn't really, you know, <laughs> like you were there, but you weren't really you. You were Anne Hesh, you know, like <laughs> yeah, you get to see Anne Hesh's butthole though. I don't think the, that's true. I think it is. I don't think that's really true. We're gonna have to find out. You got it, don't you? I remember seeing that. I remember you see her her breasts and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, the, unlike the uh, shower scene in the original Psycho, I don't know. There, I've gotten a couple of podcast confirmations on this, and you know you can trust those guys out there. You the say this all the time, and then the first time I watched the Psycho remake, I looked for it. I could not see okay. Hesh's bundle. All right, so. We're going to find it. <laughs> That's like the, your one comment you, know, you always make whenever the Psycho remake is brought up. That's the only thing I could talk about with it without wanting but to But here's the problem. The out. casting is horrible. And there's no way that the movie can even feel like the same movie mm-hmm. when Vince Vaughn is Norman Bates. There's yeah. like That is completely at odds with, with everything else he's doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, completely agree. I don't think, I don't think uh, Janet Leigh is necessarily a great actress who's unequaled um i don't think i don't think anna hesh is as good as janet lay but i don't think the disconnect is so large there mm-hmm. despite the fact that you know anna hesh had super short hair and uh you know which is very different from janet lay's kind of you know fierce blonde uh sharp eyebrows kind of, you know what i mean but no you cannot like vince vaughn uh, masturbating well i, I mean that's a <laughs> One of the th- I just think that's just because of the like the audience reacting to that moment so because when you first when you see the original psycho that's not there obviously I mean he added his own touch it you know touches no pun intended to the film that were that turned out to be comedic that turned out to be anti the original you know what I mean like not at all what Hitchcock would have wanted you know just that. Those choices don't work. And honestly, when I when I rewatched this like a year ago or something, I did not have any memory of the fact that he intercut images from Nine Inch Nails closer when William H. Macy gets killed. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, what? What kind of a choice is that? <laughs> I just, I can't get over that. I'm like, uh-huh. I think I think there were so many I think I think there were so many interesting things that could have been done in Psycho remake. Imagine if imagine if Marion Crane goes into the shower, takes the shower, then leaves the shower and gets dressed yeah. and nothing happens. Like uh like how would that fuck with them? I mean, I, again, I guess that would get spoiled and, you know, film critics would mention it and then audiences going in wouldn't be surprised, but like um but, but I mean there are a lot of ways you can subvert people's expectations mm-hmm. and i think 
Gus Van Zandt was having... I mean, I don't think Gus Van Zandt is the kind of filmmaker who needs big budgets for his dream projects. Uh, I don't think he's the kind of person who wanted to be in the Hollywood system. Uh, I, I think, honestly, that he sort of... You know, he he made Goodwill Hunting and Finding Forrester as sort of exercises in masking his style. I don't think there's, they're really, uh, you know, I don't I don't think they're works of passion for him or even you know works he was even works he was really interested in. Mm-hmm. So I I feel like the Psycho remake is sort of him giving the middle finger to the idea of remakes, but I feel like even yeah, that even the way he does it isn't as good as it could have been. Um, Agreed. I think that basically, though, he's just trying to show that, I mean, you can take someone like Hitchcock, who's sort of, you know, considered one of the early, I mean, he was one of the people who was really debated as to whether or not he was worthwhile to study in early film studies. Right. This is me getting academic. Uh, You know, because he has this huge body of work and, like, some of it is really bad. Um, but some of it is really great and sort of like auteur theory is supposed to make you read it that all of these films are great. Uh, and I think that the, like the act of taking Psycho and remaking it in 1998 and basically making the exact same movie with very few changes. I mean, he's basically just trying to show like what a joke it is (laughs) to attach those kinds of things to a director, you know, like, and and that makes sense for Gus Van Zandt because Gus Van Zandt is not a filmmaker who makes the same film over and over again. I mean, so the idea that, like, okay, I've made Malanoche and um, My Own Private Idaho and Drugstore Cowboy, but now I made Even Cowgirls Get the Blues and then I made To Die For and then I made Goodwill Hunting. Like, all of those movies are very different. Yeah, for and sure. That, I think that to throw in Psycho in the middle of his career is kind of like, so you think it was sort of him mocking auteur theory? A little bit. Um, or even just trying to test it out. Like, what... Can you can you make the exact same movie, and will it be the exact same movie? But or I, I or is like... the director really so important that the movie will be different because it's being directed by somebody else? And uh, But again, though, every one of those ideas kind of falls apart when you cast Vince Vaughn as... Because there's no movie... Oh, no, I, I don't understand what made him think of that. Uh, For sure. I think maybe he thought it would work, and it didn't. But, I mean, you know, he's he's someone who likes to take chances, and it was a very expensive, (laughs) highly publicized chance that he took. (laughs) Thank God that, like, the very next... Wait, Goodwill Hunting was 99, right? Goodwill Hunting is 97. Okay. and And then Psycho's 98... And then Finding Forrester came after that, and then... Oh, that's Jerry. right. Psycho came after mm-hmm. Goodwill Hunting. All right. No, you're... Because, yeah, because he used the cloud from Goodwill. I knew that. I just forgot. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm just happy that he... That he is continuing to make the films he kind of wants. I mean, as recently as Paranoid Park, I think that's a really interesting movie. I don't think it's as good as right. Jerry or Last Days, but I really love... I hated Paranoid Park. Oh, you hated it, really? I really did not like it. There's one shot in the film that I like, and that's it. 
There's a lot I really love about it. Um, yeah, there were some interesting stylistic choices that I thought were really cool. Like, yeah, individual scenes, and again, just that sort of... Here's one thing I'm kind of sick of, and this is more... Uh, more, And I think this might be a non-actor thing, and we talked about a little bit about it, I think, when we talked about Myth of the American Sleepover. But uh, I'm sick of movies with non-actors, yes, especially non-acting this. kids. Like, all of these movies just feel like people are sleepwalking and are sort of humorless. Mm-hmm. And feel like they're in a vacuum. Like you feel like they're in body snatchers or something. Yeah, <laughs> like and I understand that that's sort of what makes it kind of compelling is that there's sort of this lack of charisma that you get like from movie stars. Bubble. Yeah, but but yeah, but all these movies are so humorless, and it's like I don't know why all these indie movies about high school. Like, did you know Gus Van Zandt? He must have laughed during high school. But Elephant and Paranoid Park are just like without. Like none of like I I feel like I spent most of my high school life making my friends laugh or them making me laugh or trying to make people laugh. You know, like there's like never anyone laughing in any of these movies. What's there to laugh about, Patrick? There's nothing to yeah, laugh I about. Think, I think the teenage cast works in Elephant, and I don't think it really works in Paranoid Park. They just they're just not good actors, right? Like Especially the uh, the actress who plays like his second girlfriend. She's, <laughs> oh, she's really, the worst. she's yeah. really bad, and I was like ready to root for her. Like I was, I was ready to, but yeah. no, she's really bad. Yeah. and she plays kind of an important role in the movie. I, I there's no there's a lot I like about that movie, but and I it's mostly just his unusual like the score choices, uh, you know, like harking back to like some I can't remember exactly what it was but he chose uh, like a song or a moment to like amplify the situation by using like an old school film technique or old cinematic music um, from Fellini from a Fellini yeah movie. yeah just out of nowhere things that I thought wow that was weird why did he choose to do that but I didn't find it off-putting I found the acting and then eventually how things play out to just be un- uninspired. I didn't I didn't think it was bad. I just thought it was I thought I, there were things about it I liked, but it was mostly just Gus Van Sant did some cool stuff. I think my brain's starting to die out. <laughs> really? <laughs> A little bit. So why don't we get to our top 3 Gus Van Sant films? All right. I will go first. Okay. I believe my favorite is Last Days, followed by, this is very tough, but I'm going to have to say Jerry, and then Drugstore Cowboy. And I will go with Jerry as number one, Drugstore Cowboy number two, and it's a tough call between my own private Idaho, and but I think I'm going to go with Last Days for number three. Jordan, what is your what are your top three? Oh man, uh, I guess I should have thought about this in advance. Um, I think I guess my own private Idaho is my favorite. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jerry would be number two, um, and I don't know what number three is. Um, either Malanoche or maybe To Die For. Oh yeah. To Die For is a really has a really great performance by Nicole Kidman. It's something I didn't get to rewatch, but uh, I am a fan of the film. I thought it was it's pretty good. Really great. <laughs> yeah, I need to rewatch it again, even just for fun. <laughs> yeah, 
it's definitely fun. Yeah. Well, Jordan, it was great to have you on the show. Really, I appreciate appreciate you coming on and. Uh, you know, I, I, you might be the first, uh, I don't know, are you the first film major we've had on? No, know. Stephen Ray Morris. Oh, yeah. yeah, I guess so. That's right. I'm sure I'm sure a yeah. bunch more. Ren Brown. Okay. I'm sure a bunch of people have been Just film majors. Just shot my theory down. That's cool. Yeah, there's nothing, <laughs> there's nothing special about you, Jordan. There's Thanks. so many things, <laughs> it's, it's hard to sum them all up, you know? Oh, Wow. It was great. You know what? Um, I do want to bring up really quickly that we are inviting Jordan to come back either uh, you know later in the year or definitely in January of next year. I'm dying to talk Greg Araki with Jordan. Yeah, we're going to hash it out. We are so going to hash it out because I think the Doom Generation is might be my least favorite movie ever made. And he loves it. He and Jordan yep. loves it, so I, I, I you've you've written a paper on it or something, right? Uh, yes, I've read some. I've read a lot of stuff about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are not a lot of people willing to, at least critically, defend it. You know, I know a lot of people who are like, "That movie rules, man." You know, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, I don't. I don't that. know that many people who want to talk about like what's really, really important about it. Okay, so no, and I, I'm. <laughs> so open-minded and I can't wait to hear your thoughts on, uh, on that. Yeah. I mean, I could sing the praises of mysterious skin, but, uh, yeah. and the reason why I want to, and I'm, I'm rather fond of kaboom. Okay. Boom is really fun, right? Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> huh. it almost feels like a live action anime. Yeah. <laughs> like, especially oh, okay, the way that okay. the, the, the one friend, like her girlfriend is like a witch. And it's like, Oh yeah, she's a witch. Like that, yeah, that to me, that to me is like quintessential anime where it's just like, oh yeah, there's magic in this world. You didn't know there was magic in this world? Yeah, there's magic in this world. There's people with masks. Whatever. Yeah, yeah that's a fun movie. Alright, well, I mean, I, I'm, I want to see all of his movies. I saw Kaboom at TIFF when it previewed, uh, when it premiered, and like, that was the most fun I have ever had at the movies. Period. Oh, I imagine, with a full crowd, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, it was really fun. Oh, oh, cool, man. well, I'll check it out. I mean, I've liked, I've only liked uh, I like Smiley Face, and I really love Mysterious Skin. So, Mysterious Skin is gorgeous, but yeah, yeah, we'll talk about Gregor Rocky yeah. later. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that, Jordan. We're 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 excited to have you back on. But thanks again for uh, being on uh, the show. Is great. there anything else you'd like to? Uh, is there anything you'd like to plug, Jordan? Uh, well, I don't know. Like, you can follow uh, Jordan on Mubi if you want to just uh, follow his reviews and I'm stuff. Fun. On that thing, yeah. I got a Tumblr. You know, I don't know. I'm on the internet. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, just Google his name. You never know what might come up. <laughs> well, um, we're going to be back in a couple weeks. We actually don't know uh, specifically yet if we have a guest. Um, it's kind of unprecedented, but uh, the guests decided to drop on out for uh, the next director we're excited to talk about. I certainly am because he's one of my favorites, uh, Michelle Gondry. Will more than likely bring up Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. So, uh, mm-hmm. looking forward to that. I have plenty to say. You're going to get sick of me with that episode. I won't shut up. Yeah. So, <laughs> visit us at directorsclubpodcast.com. Send us an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah. And uh, 
uh, like uh, you can be cool like Robert and leave us a voicemail. We'd appreciate that at two two four three six six nine five two eight. We got to figure out what that spells. That's right. <laughs> Let's do that soon. All right. Um, but you know the, the phone number or the voicemail number is on the website as well. Uh-huh. And as uh, we failed to mention at the top of the show, we guested on the Movie Club podcast, which is directly responsible for me wanting to start up my own podcast. So uh, you should check out that show. It's at movieclubpodcast.blogspot.com. We reviewed Paris, Texas, and uh, Southland Tales. Mostly, we fought about Southland Tales. Yeah. Which was fun. Uh, that was great because I, even among people who agreed about Southland Tales, no one agreed exactly. We all lo- loved it for different reasons, right? Which was fun. Uh, so Southland Tales, uh, that's that's the reason to come. Paris, Texas, great movie too. Yeah, that was worth talking about. I definitely want to have a Richard Kelly show when his new movie comes out. I'm, that'd be fun. Great. Well, thanks everybody for listening, and uh, we will see you in a couple weeks. All right. Goodbye. Bye. Stream of Drugstore Drugstore Cowboy is a western inspired tale about Ah, fuck. Alright. <laughs> Jordan Now nah, nah, I say, now nah, I say <laughs> Gus Van Zandt, he's a hell of a filmmaker. Uga chaka, uga, uga, uga chaka, uga, uga. I got lots of beer.